0: and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show-ups and reviews along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is...
1: her musical debut. I saw our little sister we're presenting her to you. Uh, the uh, uh, song Sebastian wrote her
0: voices like a bell. by cost Nico.
2: Hey everybody, it's Nico. Welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, Andy will be joining Dan to review Once Upon a Time. Then I'll be here for the rest of the show as we are back to reviewing a pretty normal schedule for us for of our favorite shows including Castle, Person of Interest, Supernatural, and an episode of Legend of Korra in our sitcom section including How I Met Your Mother and The Big Bang Theory. And then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on Homeland, Sleepy Hollow, The Blacklist, New Girl, Revolution, Elementary, and a few others as well.
0: But before we get into all the under-the-sea themed stuff we talk about today. Let's go into everyone's favorite section. News with Nico.
2: Doctor Who 50th Anniversary Trailer The Day of the Doctor Doctor Who's 50th anniversary is upon us and now a trailer for the special that will celebrate this momentous occasion in time and space, The Day of the Doctor has hit the internet. Matt Smith, David Tennant, and John Hurt star in this one, joining together for the Time Lord's Big Day. Watch at the link in the ACC feed.
0: Yes, folks, for sure do that.
2: More Doctor Who news. Here's your complete guide to BBC America's week-long 50th anniversary celebration. My dearest Huvians, I have gathered you all here today so we can discuss our global plans for world domination, or rather, what we'll be watching in the next few weeks. Break out your favorite drinks, because the Day of the Doctor premieres two weeks from now on Saturday, November 23rd at 2.50pm Eastern and 11.50am Pacific. I know you've got that calendar square heavily circled with red sharpie and a bunch of arrows pointing to it, so let's talk about all the other stuff that's going on in the lead-up to the official 50th anniversary special.
0: There's a lot, so get out your printed paper.
2: Beginning Monday, November 18th at 9 a.m., BBC America will air a week-long Doctor Who takeover. This means marathons featuring all your favorite doctors and several new specials about the science of the series with Professor Brian Cox. The primetime specials will roll out as the week progresses with the first Doctor Who Tales from the TARDIS premiering Monday November 18th at 9 p.m. That'll be followed by The Science of Doctor Who with Brian Cox at 10 p.m. Doctor Who Explained will air Friday November 22nd at 8 p.m. and the day after the anniversary special on Sunday November 24th at 8 p.m. BBC America will take a look back at Matt Smith's time on the iconic series in Doctor Who The Doctors Revisited the 11th Doctor. But wait, there's more. BBC America will also premiere the new film, An Adventure in Space and Time, on Friday, November 22nd at 9pm, immediately following Doctor Who Explained. The film, from Sherlock co-creator Mark Gaddis, was directed by Terry McDonough from Breaking Bad and stars David Bradley from Game of Thrones, Broadchurch, and Harry Potter, Jessica Rain, Call the Midwife, Sasha Dwan from After Earth, and Brian Cox, the born-identity X2, X-Men United. Anyway, it tells the story of the genesis of Doctor Who. For even more information on all the events of Doctor Who Week, check the link in the ACC feed. It's going to be a good time. Yeah. glad to watch. Star Wars Episode 7 gets a release date. I do now, know norm- so
0: this is this week. <laughs> yeah.
2: Now, normally this would be the first story of the week because I'm such a Star Wars freak. But with all the Doctor Who news, it was sadly bumped to the third slot. Wow. Anyway, Star Wars Episode Seven finally has an official release date. Lucasfilm and Disney revealed this week that J.J. Abrams' Star Wars sequel, the first installment in a new trilogy, will in fact be released in 2015, December 18, 2015 to be exact. This comes after much fretting in the press about whether or not the film would be pushed to 2016 on the heels of news about Episode Seven script being overhauled by J.J. himself. But pre-production is said to be in full swing and shooting is expected to start in spring of 2014 at Pinewood Studios. And by the way, in the boilerplate from the announcement, only Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan from The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi are listed as writers. So, sort of all good news on this front.
0: Yeah, Lawrence Kasdan, way to go. That's the way to do it. A lot of people are very shocked that this movie is not coming out the summer of 2015.
2: I think they decided for a Christmas, get the whole family together and do the Christmas thing.
0: Because everyone says that they're running scared of the superhero movies.
2: I don't I don't think they're running scared. I think that those movies had already eaten up the whole summer yeah. and they wanted to have it where it was the thing to see that yeah. week. And I think they're doing the Harry Potter model where Okay. They're doing more Christmas time, and I, I think that's fine. I don't think it's running scared from the big the summer blockbusters. I think this is you know smart in the right. sense that it, they're going to have maybe even the entire month locked out for big movies.
0: Right, and, and the thing with Star Wars is it holds its own against the superhero front. Oh yeah, I mean they're they're right there with each other.
2: Oh for sure. So
0: regardless, Star Wars is going to make as much money because probably the Avengers will.
2: Yeah, and we wouldn't have movies like the Avengers and. Iron Man and all of that yeah. if we had not had Star Wars to, to begin with exactly The first official image from Sherlock season 3. Sherlock doesn't return to the airwaves until January, but until then, fans of the hit BBC 1 and Masterpiece series can at last stare at an official screen grab from the season 3. It's hard to draw inferences from a single image, especially without the deductive powers of the world's greatest detective, but the scene portrays a glum Watson and a pensive Holmes presumably unseen by his forlorn Boswell. While there could be any number of explanations, the most obvious is that it takes place prior to Watson discovering that, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, if you're not up to date on Sherlock, prior to Watson discovering that Sherlock faked his own death at the end of season two. I can't wait for this series to return. Roots remake in the works at History Channel. The Cable Network History is planning a new version of the iconic 1977 miniseries, Roots. The highly-rated, award-winning original TV event, which aired on ABC, was based on Alex Haley's book, Roots, the Saga of an American Family, and starred LeVar Burton as Kunta Kinte, an African man captured in the 1700s and sold into slavery. Haley's work tells the story of the man and his descendants, one of whom allegedly was Haley himself. History has obtained rights to the 1977 version and to Haley's book, Mark Walper from Bates Motel, son of Roots EP David L. Walper, is attached to executive produce. The new project will cast a modern eye on the story told in the book and the 70s movie, thereby reviving that cultural icon for a new audience. History had great success in the recent past with two other miniseries, The Bible, the premiere of which grabbed... 13.1 million viewers and Hatfields and McCoys whose final drew 14.3 million pairs of eyeballs so i think if any any channel was going to do this history has the pedigree to do it yeah american horror story renewed for season four fx announced today that it has picked up a fourth installment of american horror story extending ryan murphy and brad falchuk's acclaimed series for another 13 episodes after just four episodes, American Horror Story Coven has surpassed both of its previous seasons, Murder House and Asylum, in viewership. The third installment also ranks as the highest rated miniseries of 2013 for adults 18 to 49 and adults 18 to 34. Coven is easily on track to record the highest average delivery of adults 18 to 34 of any show in FX history. There's still nine new episodes remaining of American Horror Story Coven, airing Wednesdays at 10 p.m.
0: Yeah, this show is really on track of doing very well for itself. It's great how they could have this revolving door of guest stars every season.
2: Well, not only revolving door of guest stars, revolving main cast. Right, exactly. Yeah, that that's what was really interesting when they started season two was it was almost exclusively a new main cast. Good story. And then, yeah, and new story, new location, everything like that. And that was really interesting. I only watched the first season. I, I didn't get into the second season only because of time's rest- But my brother's watching the third season right now and is absolutely loving it.
0: And they do a good job delivering actors that we want to see on this show as well. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Blockbuster Video to close all remaining stores. Another once-dominant chain will soon be no more as Dish Network has announced that they will be closing all remaining Blockbuster Video stores in the U.S. by early next year. In addition, the Blockbuster by Mail service will end in December. Despite thousands of locations closing in recent years, Blockbuster still had about 300 locations operating until this announcement, which actually surprised me when I read that, as I had not seen a Blockbuster store in over three years. Yeah, I'm with you. Dish acquired Blockbuster in 2011, but the writing had been on the wall for a long time about the chain's future, with hundreds of stores being closed at a time in several waves. Blockbuster rose to dominance in the late 1980s and through the 1990s, becoming a hugely successful chain that was synonymous with movie rentals, first with VHS and then DVD, while also including game rentals at many locations. But with the rise of Netflix, even in its early mail order incarnation, followed by digital distribution, the company began to falter. By 2010, Blockbuster was bankrupt, leading to their purchase by Dish Network. At the time of their bankruptcy, there were still 3,330 Blockbuster locations, but that began to diminish quickly. It's possible that you may still see a Blockbuster video once in a while after Dish closes all the locations that they own. Variety notes, in an unusual move, stores that operate as licensed franchises will be able to remain open and operate under the Blockbuster name. But these will essentially become mom-and-pop video stores with the name Blockbuster. Interesting story.
0: All right, yeah, it's... it's I don't know it's times are changing, I guess.
2: Yeah, it's <laughs> it's the end of an era. I used to go to Blockbuster every weekend and get at least one movie for the weekend. And yeah. you know, right around the time that they started showing Netflix stuff in the early two thousands, I was actually a very early adopter of Blockbuster Online, which was the mail order version of Blockbuster. Yeah. But they started changing their rules about two thousand five, and it became a lot less competitive with netflix and so netflix eventually won out on my business and essentially everybody else's yeah and that's the news with nico for this week
0: all right well we're gonna la get kiss the girl because we bring in andy to talk about an outstanding episode called once upon a time that inspired the theme for this week's episode entitled ariel Back in the fairytale land that was, when Ariel saves Snow White from drowning in the ocean's depth. Snow returns the favor by helping her new friend get acquainted with Prince Eric, with whom she has fallen madly in love with. Meanwhile, Emma, Mary, Margaret, David, and Hook attempt to save Neil, who is imprisoned in one of Pan's encampments. Can Regina and Mr. Goldberg conjuredly team up to find a way to take
3: down Pan. So let's talk about this episode beginning with Ariel, the Urza mythology, Prince Eric and the interaction with Snow White first off if they were aiming to, to adapt you know the straight you know, the straight on version from the Disney film with when it came to Eric, they succeeded because you know why he was just as plain and boring as he was in the movie <laughs> and he was not hot
0: but 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 Ariel was.
3: Yes, she, Perfect. Dead oh high. my god, yeah, i i yeah. Let's get yeah, let's just get that out of the way. Eric yes. sucked Ariel Rock. So Joanna Garcia, yes. she did a fantastic job. Like I she oh, yeah. brought the kid to life. Much like the movie character. Exactly.
0: Film, yes. She did. She hit the personality dead on. And I loved how they had this little bit with her collecting things. Covering where she went, that was perfect.
3: And the fork, no, the the mini Trident.
0: Yes, the mini Trident. <laughs>
3: that was kind of cute. Well,
0: it was perfect. I mean, it's everything the fans wanted to see. And come, my younger sister, she's a huge fan of Ariel. And she's a huge fan of Snow White. So seeing the two of them together on screen was like awesome for her. And she was just loving every minute because she just loves those movies. And to see them come together, it was just really great stuff. And The Little Mermaid story itself is very, very good. Um, The animated film actually was nominated for Best Picture, or at least thought about being the Best Picture, and I think this episode showed why that story is so darn good. I'm really glad they captured it uh, with Ariel losing her voice in the end. Basically kind of having to learn the hard lesson uh, because she was scared to accept who she was in front of Eric, who she loved. Eric, I mean, not the greatest character. Don't see what she saw in the guy, but we felt the pain she was going through as Regina anger leader. Hey, Regina took her, took her voice away. Got her chance to find love, and that was just really cruel, Regina. Making it a little difficult for me to accept her redemption now, where we are in the story, but maybe that all get played out.
3: Yeah, And um, then we had Ursula. I I will, I will admit, I will admit that uh, I was a bit concerned. That me too. It looked silly in the preview. Yes, and um, I was, I was, um, I was concerned. I was concerned how they were going to do that, but they, they, they nailed it. And then they, you know, she, she sounded and acted exactly like the version from the movie.
0: Yeah, and I liked it that it wasn't Ursula, the real Ursula. It was just, you know, Regina kind of taking on her role. That just made me accept it more because it always seems like with the show that every bad thing that happens, it's either the Queen's behind it or Mr. Gold, Purple Stiltskin's behind it. So I was glad that, yes, she was behind what happened with Ariel, but the real Ursula is still out there. Cause I'm thinking she's going to be the villain for the second half of this season.
3: Yeah, and apparently that it was, that was uh, Yvette Brown from Community who voiced her. Wow, that was pretty scary for
0: nice, innocent Shirley.
3: Yeah, I've seen, I've seen clips of her on Community and she's just so hilarious. Yes. And here we go, talking about other shows in the Once Upon a Time section. Um, I love the interaction that uh, Ariel and Snow White had. It felt it. it also felt a bit. It, it was like an, it, it. became something new, iconic. Yeah. Because Snow White and Ariel is two two of the most popular Disney prisons ever.
0: Right, and they're going to top that off next week by, Ariel combining forces with Belle, which is probably the
3: third most popular. Exactly.
0: So they're giving the fans of this show especially the, the girl audiences at my, my sister's stage, what they want to watch on this show. It's a very smart move. Very smart move to get people back into this show. Get excited about it again. I completely agree. Okay, and the other thing is, I feel like Ariel's story gives us more stuff to work with. Because I feel like all the other romances are in a place where they're really clicking or they're working out. And I'm glad we have the Ariel one because it's a romance starting at square one to give them more story to tell work with. Especially if things happen with this old Neverland business and the prince being stuck on the island that Snow and Charming can always be on the show or are going to take a step back as characters on the show.
3: Yeah, no, I agree. Now let's talk about the last thing, which was the echo chamber and everyone's secrets. I thought this was a very good scene. I, cr- I cried a lot during it. Like I, When Snow was telling her about... Telling them the secret about... That she wants another baby. That she's not happy, really. Yeah. That was heartbreaking. Because, you know, I always sensed that... She wasn't, you know, really that ex- thrilled... That, to have her daughter back just as an adult.
0: Yeah. And, and, it, and it was true. And, and really, I felt... That was a theme that resonates in the real world. You know, with those people that, like, maybe gave up their kids at a younger age because they just didn't feel they were ready to be a mother. Kind of, and, and the bad feeling that they had about their, the guilt they experienced years later. Because still going through that was just really powerful stuff. Yeah. Um, especially coming from a character that we thought kind of got the happy ending. I mean, Still White's story has always been she gets the prince, it's over, happy ending. Because this, she's not getting it. It's it's interesting to see. Got in the heartbreak the prince felt, or David felt having to tell her, "Well, we might not
3: be able to have a kid." I didn't know it was he was going to be that early. By the way, that was the thing that really shocked yeah. me.
0: But it it played off very very well.
3: Yeah, but overall, I think that this episode is the season's best episode so far.
0: Very good, very much so captured the heart of what this show should be, which is you know, those Disney classic fairy tales being brought into the real world. Got kind of really having a real dramatic dark feel that fits you know, popular network dramas. Got kind of real quick about that, Andy, I want to ask you what's your makings of the hook the hook Emma and Neil Triangle?
3: Don't care about it.
0: You don't. You don't care. Okay. Uh, it's it's stupid. I thought the Emma and Neil thing, their secrets that they gave to each other, was really powerful stuff too.
3: I I agree, I agree. I like that. Here's the thing, Hook. I don't want this triangle yeah. drama.
0: Do you Do you think that Cook will eventually do the right thing in the end? No,
3: he's <laughs> Captain no. Hook. So he's what, a bad what, guy. Still. What are you talking about? He's a bad guy. Is he going to be? I'm right sure thing? though because I mean Pan is like
0: way bad guy. And Pan wasn't a bad guy in the Disney film. No, no. And by the way, I am so glad that that Belle haunting Rumplestiltskin story is over.
3: Yeah. Instead, you get to see the real Belle last, next week because you love Belle. When she's Belle,
0: when she's not. Uh, what what was her name? I want to say Lucy. It's Lacy, and she went all like dark red. So Lacy. Curf- yes,
3: and I want to see more Ariel. Darn it. Yeah, but she. Well, he's going to Storybrooke. Ariel is heading to Storybrooke in this in the next episode called Dark Hollow. So make sure to join us for that that episode discussion, guys. Because we're going home, back to Storybrooke. No, I'm already home.
0: Right. See you well, next week, guys. See ya. Bye. So. Thanks, Andy, for joining us, for covering that. Okay, we're going to talk about an episode where Alexis became a part of Castle's world. Okay, the Castle episode, like father, like daughter.
2: Castle and Beckett help Alexis with an innocence review case. With only 72 hours until his execution, their goal is to prove that the death row inmate was wrongly convicted, but some of what they uncover may only strengthen the case against him.
0: I have been calling for an episode for quite a while now, where Alexis would get the opportunity to join in on the mystery, and I know that totally didn't sit right with you, Nico, get some of my theories about this, because you felt she wasn't mature enough, it wasn't the right time, or I guess my reasoning behind it was just too much for the constraints of the show. However, I think the circumstances the writers used in this episode to get Alexis involved was very logical because we needed something major to work out the personal issues she had with her dad. And I like how Alexis got involved with this mystery from a professional standpoint because in a part of her law classes at college, instead of the death row inmate being someone she knew socially, which I thought was going to be the direction the writers were going to go. Nico, were you satisfied with how they incorporated Alexis into this week's mystery? Was it something needed to resolve her being bad at Castle?
2: Yeah, Dan, this situation totally fit within the confines of the show and reality because it allowed Alexis to be involved in a case from an academic standpoint, as her professor brought her in on a death penalty case. There's no way a college student would be part of an active murder case, but in helping to review a death penalty case for its mandatory review, that makes perfect sense. It is often undergraduates, grad students, and law students who do much of the legwork in these sort of cases with the Innocence Project all overseen with a lawyer-slash-professor advisor. So absolutely, this makes sense that Alexis would have been involved in this case.
0: Yeah, and with that, I mean, I'm glad you're saying that, Nico. My family and I watching the episode weren't totally sure on that, like if that was a legit thing. My dad kind of thought some of the access Alexis got might have been a little far-fetched for his students. And and I my answer to that was, Beckett and Laney pulled more strings for Alexis than what was shown on camera. But story-wise, I... You know, bought into it because the personal investment that Lexis put into this case in proving the guy's innocence was very similar to what we see. Beckett exhibit can do a case on a weekly basis, which was perfect in making Galexis a suitable mystery-solving partner for Castle, just to kind of mix things up for a week. You guys know, kind of frustrated at the beginning of this father-daughter team-up, because I just didn't like Galexis belittling Castle for being the man-child that we love. But once she started exhibiting traits similar to Beckett's, I got into the partnership, could ultimately had a lot of fun with it. Especially when Castle and Alexis started brainstorming. Cause he's like, whoa, that's what I normally do with Beckett. Can Alexis grow stout. Is this a similar experience to what you had while watching the episode? Cause did Alexis exhibiting traits that normally apply to Beckett go a long way in helping you accept Alexis as a suitable replacement to Castle in solving the week's mystery?
2: You know, not really, Dan. I liked the Alexis and Castle team-up for the Alexis and Castle team-up and working together and could have done without or didn't really need. Not really, I could have done without, but I didn't really need. Though they did not annoy me either, as I said, the parallels made with Alexis and Beckett's investigative styles. I didn't really need it, but I didn't really despise it either. Okay. I, I like this week's team-up for it being Alexis and Castle and the Alexis and Castle moments. And that's what I liked about it. So I didn't really need it, as I've said like five times, for Alexis and Castle or Alexis to be like Beckett in their investigation or to quote unquote replace Beckett this week in the investigation. I felt like it was a perfect opportunity for Alexis and Castle to have their own partnership develop on this and get back to father and daughter working together for a good purpose. Yeah. That was what I liked.
0: And not be so at each other's throats anymore. Exactly. Because this did, did a long way in resolving that so I guess that's over analysis on my part a little bit there but it was good stuff and I really thought that scene where they had the brainstorming session okay Castle's like oh that's normally what I do with Beckett was kind of funny that was a good reaction there kind of with that I did like Beckett's role in this episode she wasn't in it as much but I liked it that she kind of I said took on the homestead role that normally goes to Alexis yeah and again she did a little bit more than that because she interrogated a suspect in the case kind of ran a whole bunch of covenants for Castle and Alexis as they solved things and figured things out and again maybe 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 some of the lack of Beckett upset some of the hardcore fans, but I thought it was something that needed to be done for her character since forming a family dynamic between herself, Castle, and Alexis is a concern she should have. That is something that I would want to work out if I was marrying someone with a teenage daughter. So Nico, do you think this was a legit personal dilemma to have Beckett face since she and Alexis haven't really shared a deep personal connection?
2: I think it is a legitimate concern and was handled very well. I thought it was great that Beckett questioned why Alexis had asked everyone else at the precinct except her, but I wondered why that was. Was she specifically not asking Beckett because she was mad at her dad and didn't want Beckett telling him about the case? Was it because she's mad that Castle didn't tell her about the engagement and is taking it out on Beckett? I don't think so on that last one, but she may have not asked Castle or Beckett because she was angry with Castle about the whole pie situation. I thought this episode resolved these issues very well and set the whole family on a positive trajectory going forward.
0: And also I think part of it, her not going to Beckett was some of her independence thing. Yeah. I think she's really on an independence streak with wanting to move out of the house and everything. So I felt like going to Beckett was like going to an adult for help. Yeah. She wanted to be able to stand on her own.
2: Yeah, I like that idea. That's definitely a, a very astute observation because because it does fit with everything else she's doing this season. So yeah, that's a good call.
0: Yeah. And moving forward to the mystery for the week, the murder victim being killed over a high school student trying to cover up that he tricked her into tutoring him on how to become a Breaking Bad-style meth cooker was a great way to keep it interesting, because I thought it was just going to boil down to the usual lover's spat. The mystery was also structured in a way that I thought really brought out an emotionally charged performance from Molly Quinn as Alexis that was so much more than those appearances they grade her down to of being boy crazy, yelling at characters for putting themselves in danger, and providing Castle with the epiphany to solve the weekly mystery. Especially when we were hit with the surprise of the inmate God Death Row taking the rap on the murder for his brother, who was mentally distraught at the time. In my opinion, instead of Castle, finding the piece of evidence in the 11th hour that got both brothers off scot Free, I think maybe Alexis should have learned a harder lesson from this mystery. And that would have formed a connection between Alexis and Beckett through Beckett kind of giving her advice about opening up about her mom's case or a case she hadn't been able to solve. And I think with Alexis on her way to becoming a lawyer, she kind of clearly is a young Beckett before her, her career was forever altered by her mother getting killed. And the fact that I felt neither character picked up on this could this episode was a surprise to me, but Beckett did succeed, conforming the connection with Alexis that she wanted, so I could let it go with the hopes that it possibly could be addressed in the future. Again, from what we said before, this just might be some more of my overanalyzing. Anyway, Nico, were you invested in this mystery based on the different turns it took? Did you think that it brought out a great emotional performance from Molly Quinn? Also, where do you stand on this mystery's outcome? Should it have taught a harder lesson to Alexis for the purpose of making her begin to view Beckett as a family?
2: Dan, I did enjoy the mystery this week, especially when they made us think that the one brother was covering for his little brother because he felt so guilty for causing his mental problems that he thought caused the younger brother to kill the neighbor. I thought this was a great emotional episode that really dealt with emotion on all fronts the brothers, the girlfriend that stood by her convicted boyfriend, and Alexis and her deep emotional investment in solving the case and writing a wrong to save a man's life. I thought Molly Quinn was I thought Molly Quinn was excellent in Conveying That emotion and her performance was the best yet of the series. Do I think she should have learned a harder lesson from this case and by not being able to solve the case and knowing the guy was innocent? No, I don't think that was necessary. I think this case gave her a fire in her belly to fight for justice and will still allow Alexis and Beckett and Alexis and Castle to bond over all their desires to speak for the victims and fight for justice. I don't think she needed to have that crushing defeat in this case or she may have been deterred from ever fighting this hard for a case again. She needed the win, but it needed to not come easy, and that was the lesson that she learned and that's, needed to learn.
0: That's very well said there, Nico. I think that covers it perfectly. And finally, we are also probably going to get this in a future episode, but I don't know. I'm debating if we should have got some dialogue between Alexis and Beckett at the end of the episode, instead of just the hug indicating they made a connection. With all the similarity and traits we saw between the two women, I really hope this episode is the beginning of several interactions between Beckett and Alexis, with them doing stuff together, teaming up to bust castle's chops, and Beckett giving Alexis advice Got a lot of cases she's working on, for school, among other things, like pie. Also, if the writers bring Alexis in on another mystery, I think they should consider a team up between her and Beckett, with Castle and the guys at the precinct cut the sidelines running evidence and doing research. Nico, do you think the ending of this episode marks the beginning of more, Alexis-Beckett interactions? Could maybe Alexis having more involvement in solving cases?
2: Dan, I do think it indicates more interactions between Alexis and Beckett, but I still don't believe that they will bring Alexis in on active cases, at least not in actual investigating of the case. But I could see them using her to review the cases and help come up with alternative theories, much like Castle does, at home. That's more of what
0: I was thinking, actually.
2: Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. I could see an Alexis and Beckett team up on a non-NYPD case. Something or somehow Alexis and Beckett have to work together to solve a mystery for some other sort of thing. I just don't know what that will be, but I know I will enjoy it if it happens. I still don't think bringing a sophomore in college into an active investigation, no matter who she is, is logical or something that would happen. So I don't see it, the show going that way. But I do see them possibly using her as a, another sounding board at home now that she has proven she can handle it.
0: Well, the other thing is, you know, it might be a situation where Alexis and Beckett go on a trip for bonding or something like that. And they okay. run into a mystery or something like that. Kind of like the vacation episode. Right. Like that kind of scenario. That's what I'm doing. But we'll see.
2: That would be interesting where Alexis is kind of back at the hotel or just kind of out of the way, out of the danger. And when Beckett comes home, since she doesn't have Castle to go over the case with, she and Alexis go over the case and they bond in that way. I think that's that's a good way to make it work.
0: I agree. And that could
2: be the way that they start kicking off using her back home as well, because Beckett has this experience with her when it was just the two of them. And then they are working on a case at home and Alexis walks in and says, hey, what are you guys working on? And Castle's quick to dismiss and say, oh, you know, just another case or something. And Beckett's like, actually, we could probably use another set of eyes okay. if you're interested in looking at this and kind of catches Castle off guard. You know, he <laughs> he's kind of like, you don't need me anymore. Okay. You know, I could see that'd something like that scene. happening and, and having a lot of fun with it.
0: Yeah, that'd be good stuff. I thought this really opened up the door for Alexis' character, kind of having her evolve. Um, I, I think if you got a decent actress on the show to play the teenage daughter, you might as well use her well. Yeah. I think that's what they did. So, great episode of Castle. Get interested in looking forward to next week. Because the following week, I think we're going to get a very, very big episode that's going to set up a conflict moving forward. That's going to go outside the personal realm, I think. But we'll see about that. But first, let's move on to an episode that was a little interesting. I guess it, it, in this episode, Dean kind of shared some traits with Ariel as he was able to talk to animals. I don't know if he could talk to fish with this, but uh, he certainly could talk to dogs, got pigeons and other things. So, let's talk about the supernatural episode Dog Dean Afternoon.
2: To solve two murders, Dean casts a spell to bond with the German Shepherd that witnessed both crimes. However, the spell has an unfortunate side effect.
0: Yes. This week's Supernatural wasn't the greatest episode, but it wasn't the worst either. Because the writers went for fun this week, by putting all the overarching story at a majority of the character development, go off to the side in favor of comedy, with the hilarious executed concept called Dean casting a spell on himself that allowed him to talk to the animals. So as a result of this episode going more of the comedy route, I decided we're going to handle this like one of our sitcoms we cover, uh, by me saying that my favorite comedic moment from this episode of Supernatural was a toss-up between Dean yelling at, and attempting to shoot the pigeon that pooped on his car, and Dean interacting with the dog at the animal shelter, especially the one that was obsessed with Sam scratching its belly. So, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's, I guess, Dr. Doolittle-themed episode of Supernatural?
2: I don't have one specific, so I'll say that I loved the whole talking to animals thing and enjoyed the scene where Dean started exhibiting the traits of a dog and kept retrieving the scrap of paper that Sam kept throwing away. I guess that would have to be my favorite comedic aspect of this episode.
0: Because it was so subtle how they brought it in. Oh, it was
2: great. Yeah, I was, loved
0: uh, it. It was. It, and it was fun to have a supernatural episode that kind of just took a break and had fun with itself. Oh, yeah. This is much like it reminded me of the, the one where Dee becomes afraid of everything.
2: Yeah. Or the one uh, where they got trapped in the television. Yes. Very, very much standalone, very comedy filled. Yeah. Loved. Yep. I loved those before. And then this one was right up there in quality and in the comedy as well.
0: Exactly. Exactly. In addition to delivering big laughs, I felt this episode did have a very imaginative villain, which took the form of a chef that ate animal body parts to keep his cancer from killing him. If you do your research, this was something that was actually practiced by witch doctors. But I was really impressed at how the set design team, as well as the special effects crew, displayed the abilities the chef gained from the animals he digested, such as eating cats whole and blending in with the wallpaper. There were also part of me that wanted the writers to give the chef more development by having the Winchester's dive into a horror parody on the restaurant business atmosphere as shown on Food Network, but I think it would have been too much with the Talking to the Animals theme, because I'm glad they went that route, because I think it contained the comedy to make this episode succeed, despite being somewhat filler. Nico, what'd you think of the animal organ-eating chef? because this week's Supernatural Villain
2: I too enjoyed this concept as an idea for a villain. This is definitely something that I have not seen before on any other show that I'm watching, so that was fun as well to be surprised by it. I also thought the use of Steve Valentine as the chef to lend a recognizable face to the villain was a great choice. Steve Valentine has been on Psych, Leverage, NCIS, Warehouse 13, Chuck, House, and where I first saw him, or recognized him at least, from starring in Crossing Jordan. So I thought he was an excellent choice for this week's villain.
0: I agree with that. I thought that was a good choice. That's kind of why I wanted a little bit more development yeah. since he's been around the block. But uh, it worked what it was, and I thought it was clever how they did make him a chef. That that made sense how he was able to get away with the crimes he was committing of killing people. And finally, this episode did have a bit of development when it came to the overarching story. As Ezekiel briefly took over Sam's body to cure a slash the chef delivered to his throat before being knocked unconscious again. In my opinion, this was a much better Ezekiel takeover scene than the one we complained about from last week's episode because it didn't miraculously save the day or some character's life because Sam was still overpowered. However, it did push the story forward as the chef was able to convey to Sam something was different about him compared to the normal human. And that makes me wonder if they're going to resolve Sam being possessed by Ezekiel during the mid-season finale or if he's going to find out what Dean did in that episode because he seems to be on the trail that something's up pretty quickly. Vico, when do you think Sam will find out he is possessed by Ezekiel. Okay, will the story be resolved in that episode?
2: Dan, I think you're right That it is coming. And I think it's coming soon. Does that mean mid-season finale? Probably. That makes the most sense in my mind as well. I think that that may be the cliffhanger, in fact, for that episode, which will, of course, keep us talking over the Christmas break. I'm not going to lie, I do hope they resolve the Ezekiel storyline in the mid-season premiere and Sam and Zeke are both healed by then and can separate. I think it was a necessary story arc to resolve the issues raised by attempting the trials but now it has run its course and needs to end i think in this mid-season finale sam should find out about ezekiel and in the mid-season return or premiere he should make the decision to expel zeke and go their separate ways, or at least have Zeke leave his body. Okay. So I think that's how it's going to go. That's I agree. what I'm rooting for anyway.
0: Well, this season has been really, really good. Um, yeah. This is the only, like, hang-up for it? God, it's not terrible.
2: <laughs> no, not by any means. It's just an annoyance so far for us.
0: God, I think the writers are picking up on that, why it's going so quickly. Yeah. They get resolved. I agree. All right. Well, with that, let's take out our dinglehoppers. God, I mean, forks. God, stab right into this episode of Person of Interest. Get titled The Perfect Mark. We'll yeah. be
2: The machine gives Finch and Reese the number of a hypnotherapist who is using his craft for personal gain. Meanwhile, Carter gets a lead on an antique dealer who could give her the means to bring down HR.
0: Everybody hates a con man, and that's exactly how the person of interest he got HR felt. Because this week's numbers hypnotherapist act was just a con to rip off an antique dealer got a baseball slide by Babe Ruth got the Yankees that was worth millions. However, the twist to this was the baseball ended up becoming a key to HR's money laundering, prompting a race between the person of interest team and HR to find the con man, because whoever ended up having the ball had the potential to take the other side out. On that note, I've got some questions for you, Nico. In, do you think the way HR went about laundering their money by exchanging it through an auction was realistic? Did it make sense on how it put the con man right in the middle of the war between HR and the person of interest team?
2: Dan, I do think this was a realistic means of laundering the money for HR and the Russians. All it takes is a corrupt appraiser who values the item that HR puts up for auction as authentic and the antiques dealer bids as much dirty money as needed to win the auction and the dirty money becomes clean. The antiques dealer then fake sells the item later to the Russians for HR's cut of the money. That allows HR to legitimize the dirty money. It is actually a pretty ingenious scheme. I thought it was brilliant to have the con man discover the scheme and decide to defraud the Antique Stealer by making him bid on the wrong item. This of course lands him right in the middle of the struggle between HR and the Person of Interest team because HR learns that the Antique Stealer has been seeing a therapist and decides to kill him even before he steals from them just in case the Antique Stealer let anything slip in a therapy session. When the therapist slash con man decides to steal from them, then it just made them want to kill him even more. I really liked this setup this week and I thought it was very plausible.
0: Yes, everyone's after the con man. Yeah. Yeah, sucks to be that that guy the other funny thing that was interesting is the Swede the guy that was the antiques dealer he was actually the the evil coach of Iceland and mighty ducks too
2: oh really yes yeah yeah and now that you say that I totally see it
0: so I thought that was kind of funny yeah anyhow, That's awesome yeah way to go person of interest cast in addition to the con man trying to escape the clutches of h r there was some romance sprinkled in this episode as a nice change of pace with the baseball allowing him to achieve what he considered as the ultimate con of living happily ever after with the love of his life natalie by going legit and I don't know if it was the music the con man reminded me of White Collar's Neil Caffrey, or that I'm a big sap, but the romance got this old-fashioned, kind of Casablanca 1930s, 40s feel that made me really want the con man and Natalie to pull off running away together. However, with person of interest being the show full of twists that it is, the writer said no to the happy end because Natalie was revealed to be a con conning the con man because she slings off with a baseball right underneath everyone's nose. Can I normally like it when person of interest tells a twist that goes against the expected? Could after so many episodes this season ending on a negative note? I felt that we as the audience deserved a win up on this one, especially after the tragedy that occurred at the end of this episode. Nico, did you like the romance that was sprinkled in this episode? Were you disappointed it didn't work? out for the con man and natalie
2: dan this week it wasn't much of a twist for us here because from the beginning or damn near the beginning my mom called it that the girlfriend was playing the con man i was not as convinced early on but it put some doubt in my mind that had me question everything the rest of the episode. So I wasn't rooting as hard for the romance as, say, most people were, but I, too, am a sap for that sort of thing, so I was hoping that if she was not playing him, that they would get their chance to live happily ever after, once the person of interest team saved their skins. I enjoyed the ending, even if it was spoiled by my mom's keen instincts, so I was not disappointed that it didn't work out for the con man and Natalie, because I liked this ending even better. So, I was okay with it. I wasn't really rooting for the romance, because I kind of felt like she was playing him and then it turned out to be right
0: well yeah if you knew the whole time kind of i just got into it I man. no i think I, you know. I
2: i think it was just like my mom has watched and read way too many mysteries that she just knew from the start
0: what well, was that darn uh once upon a time aerial episode that yeah you lovey-dovey anyhow with detective turning being able to walk away from the auction house without reese being able to take him off the board i'll admit that i was the first one to grow thinking that like that episode a few weeks ago we're going to come really close to ending this HR storyline, only for it to slip through our fingers once again. Nuts. Although this time around, a person of interest came through, but with a price, as Turney catches Carter's rookie partner, conforming to her on HR, and Turney guns him down right in front of Carter. Because you probably figured, I was pretty upset about the rookie partner stuff, because I liked how Carter was still continuing to mentor him, even though he started out as her enemy. But it was shocking enough to kick what I truly believe the finale to the HR storyline into high gear. Because Carter, after shooting him, convinced his in his last dying breath to reveal Beecher's godfather, a.k.a. the mayor's assistant, as the head of HR. Now what do I foresee as the aftermath to the death of the rookie? Well, we know that he's Russian, and that's going to tick them off, leading to some kind of gang war between HR and the Russian, But on top of that, I think Nico's theory about the fiance's number coming up is still going to be in play, because she's going to be connected to some surprise character, which I think will have something to do with Goliath's big plan to reemerge as one of the central big bands on this show, unless my bigger theory, which we will get to in a moment, comes into play. Although, before opening that can of worms, I have to ask Nico: were you disappointed by the death of the rookie? God, do you think it's going to put Carter in a position where she's accused of both murdering Terny and her partner?
2: Yeah, Dan, I was disappointed as well about the death of her rookie partner because I too felt that the story arc with her turning him to work for her was interesting and was starting to have legs as we saw in this scene he was able to get her great intel on HR before being gunned down. As for the aftermath of the shooting, no, I don't believe okay. Carter will be accused of murder. At least I really hope not because that's just stupid.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I I think she will call in the shooting and explain that Tierney shot her partner and her partner returned fire and killed him. The forensics will back that story. Or she could have Reese help her to dispose of the bodies and just report her partner as failing to show up the next day for work. Either way, I do not want a Carter being accused of something she did not do again story arc.
0: Oh, poor Fusco. He's going to get stuck burying bodies again. Right, yeah. exactly. That's what's going to happen, Reese. She calls Reese, Reese, Fusco, get rid of the bodies. Oh, poor Fusco, he's the grunt worker. Anyhow, finally, as the previews for next week showed, person of interest is going to do something that's unheard of for television. They're going to have a three-part mid-season finale to end the HR story arc. Because I know, Nico, that we've gotten beyond tired of this arc, but I don't think it's gone on for two and a half seasons Get Jonathan Nolan didn't have something big planned to end it. Right now, there's something big is being teased as a character death, which could still happen, but I'm thinking it's going to be beyond that, because in the biggest granddaddy, person of interest twist of them all, like a game changer that's going to completely turn the show on its head, on the level of Fringe, revealing the alternate reality. And I'm coming to this conclusion, based on the scene Fitch had at the end of the episode, where Root Ward Fitch, something was coming that he'd been unable to stop because I'm wondering if in the turmoil that's caused by the mayor's assistant being revealed as HR, it's going to leave the city vulnerable to a terrorist attack for vigilance, which will turn New York into a no-man's land, or knock out all maybe surveillance and technology in the area, leaving the machine as the only tool to clean up the aftermath. Then again, it's also possible the attack could knock out the machine, could it somehow piece together information, to connect all the major characters caught this show, including someone like Elias, to act as almost its backup quid compromised. Again, Nico, I'm kind of hoping here you could explain how the machine connects all of these people in kind a of realistic, I guess, non-too-sci-fi fashion, but if not, just give us your thoughts, got my crazy theories regarding how this upcoming three-part episode could completely turn this show upside down in a fresh and exciting way.
2: Dan, I like your theories, and they're some of the more out-there ones we've had for this series, and would be right on par for some of our discussions of Fringe. I like the idea that exposure of the mayor's chief of staff as the head of HR could throw New York City politics and the police into chaos and leave the city open to a terrorist attack from vigilance or even another organization. I'm hopeful that if there is a character death, as you suggested, that is not one that completely kills the person of interest team and the show. I figure based on use, Fusco is the prime candidate, which would disappoint me because we would lose that great redemption possibility although if he redeemed himself in his death it could be a fitting end to the character
0: but the character makes me laugh
2: oh yeah i'm gonna miss
0: the character
2: if this revelation that changes the show or flips it on its head is done correctly as i would assume since this show has not made any mistakes so far really i think this could be as effective and innovative as fringe introducing that alternate reality I don't really have a firm grasp of where things might go or what might change, which I like because it means it will be a huge surprise for me. But I do hope we do not lose a major character. Anyway, I don't have a sci-fi heavy or sci-fi free theory at this point, so we'll just have to go with yours for now.
0: There's a storm coming, Mr. Reese. I almost half expected to hear that line at some point, because this feels very much like we're on the verge of that scene in The Dark Knight Rises where Bane takes over Gotham City. Yeah, I feel like we're at that breaking point.
2: Yeah, I hope that the machine doesn't go down. That was one of your theories, and I just don't think it's person of interest without the machine. Yeah, I agree. And so, I I would be disappointed if it goes down and they have to go to other intelligence gathering sources. I think having the machine is part of what makes person of interest unique, and to lose that would be a a disappointment for me. Now, I could see a single episode where the machine goes down. We actually saw go all wonky when it was being hacked but i think to have it go down for an extended period of time would be a huge mistake on the show's part so i don't want to see that i'm not saying it can't happen but i don't really want to see that
0: and i still think elias is a key to a lot of things to whatever happens
2: yeah there's no reason that they would keep him around for this long and just sprinkle him in over this season if he was not going to play a huge role going forward
0: okay plus we were just excited for that we've plotted that for a while oh for sure because we love that character
2: and the actor of course
0: well yes of course yes but he's up to something and something's going to happen when whatever goes down that's going to put him in a very good position so it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. I think that's going to be our big twist. Okay. Yeah, it's going to be a surprise. God Fusco, I hope we don't have to have a moment of silence for you in three weeks, but we'll see. <laughs> All right, so with that, let's move on to talking about an impressive animated production that's almost right up there with The Little Mermaid, which is the theme of our episode, or responsible for our theme of the episode. Let's talk about a beautifully animated show as well, where we saw some familiar faces from the previous series. So let's talk about a show called The Legend of Korra, and the episode entitled A New Spiritual Age.
1: Earth. Fire. Air.
0: Water. Korra arrives in the spirit world where she has difficulty forging connections with the spirit.
2: This week's episode easily boasted the most impressive visuals we've seen in book two thus far, excluding the impressive beginnings parts one and two, because it was a different visual style and was really awesome in its own right. In this episode, we got our first in-depth look at the spirit world since the original series Avatar The Last Airbender, and man, it was great. The inspiring backdrops and the vibrant colors, everything just seems so breathtaking in this really yet-to-be-explored aspect of this universe. Dan, from a visual perspective, what did you enjoy about this first real in-depth exploration of the spirit world in this series?
0: It almost felt like Wonderland.
2: But with better visuals. With better visuals, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I meant, I meant more of the Disney animated. Oh, okay, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, you know, I was trying to get that vibe across where nothing was what it seemed and things were strange. You know, animals talk. There were sinkholes in the ground. I really liked how it was something that's kind of controlled by emotions yeah. and what goes on there. That was really cool. And really, I felt they were much more imaginative in the spirit world this time around than they were the first time we saw it when Ang went there. Okay. And I think it's because at that point it was so early on in the show. I think they were like, "Is this going to be too weird for kids? How far do we go with this?" Sure. And here, I think they felt they were very comfortable. I knew the distance they could take with it because they have such a strong, built-in fan base. The only thing that was weird about it was Korra getting transformed back into a little girl.
2: Yeah, for sure. I'll uh, I'll ask you about that a little bit more yeah, but... in a minute. <laughs> yeah. But as soon as I saw Iroh in this episode, I knew you would enjoy this episode entitled A New Spiritual Age. Iroh was known for his good advice and great tea in the original series Avatar The Last Airbender. So it was all the more appropriate that Legend of Korra would have him use a tea party slash wedding reception to gently guide Korra toward understanding her fears.
0: He's like the Mad Hatter in this episode.
2: Absolutely. And it makes your Wonderland analogy even more apropos a gentle nudge that she's now the metaphorical teapot that carries rava and thus has the light inside of her helped to reinforce the lessons she learned in the beginnings episodes but in a different context learning about wan retaught her about being the avatar i rose lesson here helped her lock in that knowledge and gain the confidence, not bullheaded pride, she needs to actually be the Avatar going forward. The best piece of advice that Iroh gave Korra was when he said, if you look for the light, you can often find it, but if you seek the dark, that is all you will find. I love that quote and it very much felt like a Jedi proverb or a Yodaism. Dan, what did you enjoy most about Iroh's appearance in the spirit world?
0: Well, just seeing Iroh was huge. Yeah. That's a character that is taken as the wisest character within the whole universe. Yep. So to see him there was huge. And for us as fans, we took everything he said to heart because he was such a larger than life character on the show. And really, he, I mean, Mako, the voice actor who did Iroh before he had fortunately passed away. Was almost made larger than life by these animators. They were just astounded by this man, and and he brought a lot of I think his beliefs and who he was into Iroh. and and I think they really looked at him like a uncle grandfatherly like figure. So they really respected his memory with what they did here with him showing up, and that was just it was nice. It was heartwarming, and within Korra there is a lot of rage like Zuko had, and so I felt the advice that he gave was much like. How he guided Zuko past his anger. And so that was cool because we could connect with that. It's like they used the past to push forward the present story. And because he functioned in these ways. The original series, it functioned very well with Korra as well. And so just like, I liked how well he was placed. And I was surprised to see him. I Did thought, you
2: enjoy the voice actor who played him this time?
0: I thought they got it right. It was very, very close. Yeah. They were nervous to do his voice, I know, in series three. Yeah. And and they didn't even want to say any lines. Okay, and now, I, I don't know who they... They got a different voice actor or what they did, but they felt much more comfortable about it. So I was yeah. surprised to see it from that standpoint. Because, well, I figured they would just go with Hang Or or we'd see Sokka or we'd see, you know, somebody else Yeah. in the spirit world from the previous show. But again, I think the writers also believe, you know, that Mako passed on to a spirit world. You know, that, that kind of concept as well. So it made sense that he would be up there to them guiding yep. him. So that was the I thought that was a nice tribute as well.
2: Absolutely. What I really liked about this episode, however, was the notion that Korra's attitude during book two, and arguably also during much of book one, contributed to the lack of balance yeah. between the spirit world and the material world. Iroh told her, You have light and peace inside of you. If you let it out, you can change the world around you. Her anger, her frustration, her act first and ask questions later behavior, they all seem to have contributed to putting things out of whack and led to our current situation. While I do think Unlock has been doing things on his own end, I also think he's been taking advantage of the ripple effects of Korra's actions both last season and this season as well. I've wanted to see some sort of consequence for her conduct, and I can't think of a better one than giving the angry spirits more negative okay. vibes to feed off of. What I did not understand or particularly care for was Cora reverting to her little roly-poly childlike self. What was the reasoning for this? Was it to amplify her fears to make her more in need of Iroh's advice and protection? Dan, do you think Cora's actions from the first two seasons have manifested in the imbalance between the worlds, and do you have an answer for why Cora reverted to her childhood state in the spirit world.
0: Well, it was kind of weird that Cora went back to her childlike state. I think part of it was over, being overwhelmed with the spirit world and the responsibility of having to take care of Janora and just all of it. I, I, I do think she was overwhelmed. But I do think there was some fear there. And I know we don't think of Cora as someone that's afraid, but I think a lot of her anger or temper is out of fear. So I think that was part of it. I also think they wanted to say that a child's mind is more open to things. And so Cora was able to be more open to Iroh's advice because she was taken back to a young age. Okay. The other thing is, you know, Aang was a child. And, and I felt like that Aang's greatest strength was his innocence. And so bringing Cora back to a child, I guess, brought back that innocence. And, and I think Cora needs to remember to keep that innocence with Okay. Because I, I think Aang's problem was he was almost too innocent at times or too peaceful. And that would make him conflicted. Because he needed to know the right times to fight and know when he should get involved and get involved in things. Also, I think his compassion to protect his friends and feelings for Katara conflicted him as well. Sure. Where I think Korra's is, she has anger issues. She has a temper. When that's her flaw is that she is angry and that anger has, you know, done what it did with the spirits. So I I get that all. And again, as a child, I think you're not as angry. You know, you, you grow into your anger and have those experiences. So I right. think it was reverting Cora back to a time where she wasn't so angry. And reminding her, do you need to still be that roly poly innocent little girl? And there's, t- there's times to do that, and then there's times to be your fierce angry self. Sure. So she's the opposite of Aang, because basically okay. what it is.
2: Now, this episode also saw the return of Wan Shi Tong, who knows 10,000 things. Yeah. I enjoyed this character in the original series, and he was just as arrogant and smug here as I remember Urgh. him from Avatar. Wan Shi Tong's role in this episode was more than just the return of a fan favorite character. Though. His presence helped to make Unalak's appearance both surprising and. Not surprising. Wan Shi Tong does what is best for him and his knowledge, and he saw Unalak as beneficial to that cause. That's all that mattered to him. Their connection also helped to fill in a potential gap regarding how Unalak learned as much as he has, but that still does not answer the question of why the spirits would help Unalak knowing that he intends to release Vatu, and that could destroy the material world. Dan, were you excited to see Wan Shi Tong again? And do you have an answer for why the spirits are helping Unalak free Vatu? Could it be that the spirits want to to return to the material world permanently and are willing to release Vatu to do so?
0: I would say yes. I would say Wan Shi Tong is just curious to see what happens. Okay. And he's a darn owl that ticks me off for how he always <laughs> screws over the Avatar. Can I do it? As soon as I saw him, I'm like, oh no, he's going to screw somebody over. Because remember, he was the one that was technically responsible for Aang losing Appa. Right. So I saw him and I'm like, I got a bad feeling about this. I had my Star Wars moment with him because he is—he he, he screws over the Avatar all the time. I mean, I think his purpose in life is to screw, screw over the avatar. And that's exactly what he did. But yet, yeah, going going more seriously into it. I do think some of the spirits want to cross over. But I don't know if that's everybody. Because, I mean, Iroh obviously doesn't want to cross over. Right. And and the more beautiful, I mean, the more innocent creatures that are in the spirit world, I don't think want to cross over. But again, it seems like there's anger again. Okay. Unlock's anger is almost affecting the spirit world as well. Because did you notice when he got on his evil high horse that the creatures would change?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: They like like when Korra had the upper hand, they were all innocent and nice creatures. And then Ulak would get the upper hand because they go all evil. Yep. Cause so it's that it was that balance. So it's it's weird. It's it's really emo- an emotional thing, and I think it's because they're not meant to be in the spirit world. Yeah. Like, they're invaders, and because they're invaders, it's making it go wonky.
2: Yeah, I I think you're right, Dan.
0: I think that's why only the Avatar should go in Not good and evil, just good, which is the Avatar.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, just a reminder, since I screwed up last week thinking that next week will be the two-part finale, it's actually just a regular two-part episode, and the following week will be the two-part finale. So, four more episodes of Korra before the season is finished. Dan, any final thoughts before we move on?
0: I'm glad that it's a. We've got four more episodes. Yeah. Because I think it would just been too quick of a resolution. And I think some mm-hmm. of that stuff with Tenzin's going to get pretty emotional next week. And there needs to be time for it. Because that was that ending of this episode was just heartbreaking. When Korra comes out of the spirit world and Tenzin can't wake Janora up, and he goes, "What have you done? You know, where's my daughter? Why isn't my daughter okay?" Yeah. And and that was heartbreaking. And again, he. And, and that's the other thing. Tenzin was just scared, you know, and, and I don't think he meant to hurt Korra when he was acting that way. I mean, he cares about her just as much. But I think we may see a point where Korra's going to get thrown off by what happened. And maybe that's what leads her back to Team Avatar. They, You know, they can't find her, they need to find her, and she's just morally distraught. Or, or maybe that's how we end up in the Fire Nation. It's always that possibility.
2: All good thoughts. <laughs> yes.
0: I want to go there, as you could tell. I know, I but, know. But uh, I I think that covers it. I think we're good. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, is it that time for the sitcom section?
2: I believe it is.
0: All right. Let's talk about a How I Met Your Mother episode. That was quite a lot of fun in the episode of the Lighthouse.
2: Robin and Loretta's disagreement escalates And Barney is trapped in the middle While Marshall and Daphne discover a stowaway In their trip And Ted takes Cassie on a date to a lighthouse
4: My thoughts on the 8th episode Of the ninth season of How I Met Your Mother are this What started out as this Very farcical, almost silly Episode of How I Met Your Mother With the egg-off between Robin and Loretta And the sweater coming back into play From Lily smashing her drinks The thing from Fantastic Four style and the thank you line is coming back with Ted and the person behind the desk that whole storyline coming back into play and the Cassie storyline which I thought was actually quite unnecessary and really only filling, really only meaning to fill time until the mother comes back I thought a lot of these things were unnecessary but the way they paid these things off Near the end of the episode. And one one thing I didn't mention on purpose. And I'll mention this right now. The Daphne and Marshall storyline. Which I'll be honest with you. If you were going to cut out one thing from this final season. I think that would have been it. I think it would have been much more interesting. To see Marshall dealing with other people. Trying to get back on the road to New York. But. And this is a big But. I loved the whole storyline between Daphne and Marshall, because since since Sherry Shepard's character showed up in the first episode of this season, she's really pushed Marshall around, and Marshall's really done nothing about it, and I like how at the end of this episode, her monologue, her being Daphne's monologue to Marshall, really encapsulates The Marshall Harrison character for nine years on on How I Met Your Mother. He's always been very docile. He's always been very accommodating. Even to strangers. And the look on Sherry Shepard's face when Jason Segel goes into this very dramatic monologue. But still being able to finish that off with comedy. I thought that was brilliant. The score that was used in that scene was brilliant. I loved everything about that scene and I'm really interested to see where this storyline is going to go. I loved that we don't know very much about Robin's mother, who we, who we have never seen on the series at all. We've seen Robin's father in two different incarnations, but we've never actually seen Robin's mother. And I like the little tally thing at the bottom of the screen. Um, The Cassie story I thought was unnecessary. I thought it was you know, a complete waste of time. But the way they paid that off, and I'll get back to it in the end of this little recording here, was very, very well done. Again, I didn't think the Cassie storyline really meant anything, but if this is what it was leading up to, I think it was perfectly done. The whole thing with Robin and Loretta, again, I'm just going to be honest with you guys, and... The one thing that I love more in this series than anything is Ted's storyline, but I will say the way they wrapped up Loretta and Robin with the hug at the end that they've been pretty much feuding ever since Robin and Barney announced their engagement back last season and how they... How they ended this kind of on-again, off-again rivalry between the two of them, I thought was masterfully done. And it was really sweet and really well played by both performers. Now to get to the very end scene. We haven't seen Kristen Miliati for, I think, since the first episode of this season. And I was really wondering when she was going to be back. And when they cut to two years later to The Lighthouse... I'm not gonna lie, there's two scenes in this episode that really, really got, got tears in my eyes. One was the monologue from Jason Siegel in the, in the monstrosity. And the next one was the use of, um, the classic rock song, I can't remember who the artist was, I'm sorry, and Ted's proposal to his future wife. I had tears in my eyes and it really shows me as a fan, it really reminds me as a fan how emotionally invested I am in the series when I already know Ted's going to marry this woman. I know that she, he's going to live happily ever after with this woman and I hope Nico's wrong about his story about the mother. But just the fact that I, I'm seeing the proposal to, of Ted to his future wife. But tears to my eyes, and really has redeemed these last few episodes that were three out of five at best. This was the best episode since the first episode of this season. I have nothing but good things to say about it. I think Nico and Dan. I have nothing good but good things to say about it. I'll see you guys next week. Talk to you later. Bye bye.
0: Woo! Well, now that you've finished your voicemail, I know I'm going to be. I'm going to be the man who's reviewing this episode after you. So I'm going to say this episode had me smiling, because it had all the makings of a great final season episode for a sitcom, with the heartwarming moments of the Stinson's accepting Robin not being able to have children, big character development for Marshall, unanswered questions being addressed about Robin's mother, a flash forward to a huge milestone in Ted's life, and a song that you just can't get out of your head, which made me believe I would walk 500 miles and i would walk five hundred more just to beat the man who walked one thousand miles to meet the mother at the door. And now that I'm done singing for today, I'm going to pass things on to you, Nico, with his thoughts on this week's How I Met Your Mother.
2: Dan, I really enjoyed the flash forward to the proposal and was shocked by its inclusion here this early in the season. It was perfect and was exactly a Ted Mosby moment, so why not do it here? I also loved that he took the wrong girl there, Cassie, and puked (laughs) over the rail. Great disappointing visit to the lighthouse to set up the proposal so well in the end. Also, I'm glad that your concern that the Proclaimer song was not being used on this road trip was resolved this week. Bye. All good stuff to make yet another memorable episode in this final season. Good stuff.
0: Marshall is on the edge now. And Daphne, you better get used to that darn song. I
5: hate this song. Give
0: it time. Yeah, I had to pause when they started playing it. Oh, yeah. I was laughing so hard. I was so excited. Because that's like one of my favorite things from the show. So. That, that uh with the Fiat episode with the yeah. with the car. That's yep. like one of my favorite episodes. So. I was just like, yes. My How I Met Your Mother run is complete. Yep. But actually, we need the slaps, the last slap. Yeah. And then it will be good.
2: We know it's coming.
0: It's coming. I think it's going to be the mid-season finale. Yeah, good call. giving 5, the final slap. Isn't that what it would be? Yeah.
2: I think so, yeah. Yeah.
0: All right, so let's move on now to an equally fun episode of Big Bang Theory that also could something that I really wanted to see on this show. So they really, CBS, nice job on completing some of my aspirations for Big Bang Theory how I met your mother this week. Okay, so let's talk now about the episode, The Proton Displacement. With the Bang.
2: When Professor Proton seeks advice from Leonard, Sheldon is hurt and contacts Bill Nye, the science guy. Howard interrupts Raj's girl's night out.
0: You'd think that Bob Newhart returning as Professor Proton or Bill Nye, the science guy, making an appearance, which is something that I've wanted to see happen since this show started, would be my favorite comedic moment. But Raj hijacked the episode again, because my favorite comedic moment of the week was Raj making Howard a lightsaber belt buckle, and then revealing a belt buckle of his own so they could duel. I guess that goes to show you, Amy was right, that Raj and Howard are going to end up having sex before her and Sheldon. So Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment? from this week's Big Bang Theory.
2: Dan, I too enjoyed Raj's lightsaber belt buckle, but I'd have to say that Bill Nye, the science guy's appearance, and the rivalry that Professor Proton had with him was my favorite comedic moment. Bob Newhart was once again great as Professor Proton, and I loved how he felt like Bill Nye stole his ideas and didn't want him looking at the micro-vacuum tubes and stealing that idea as well. Just great stuff from Bill Nye and Bob Newhart this (laughs) week, and I felt they stole the show.
0: God, I loved how confused Bill Nye was at what was going on. (laughs) Yeah. And that picture of him and Sheldon getting smoothies. Hilarious stuff. Very good. It was just like, get me out of here.
2: What's going on, Very good stuff. Yeah. To
0: get stuck. Very funny, funny episode of Big Bang Theory. And with that, I think it's time to get a little more serious now because we go into the Airways Rundown.
1: You're watching CBS. I finds home for Mondays. FX. In the USA. Characters welcome. The We know drama.
0: With thoughts on Homeland. Right. And the
2: episode of Homeland still positive.
0: Carrie turns the table on the mastermind of the Langley bombing and recruits one of Iran's most powerful cooperatives. Meanwhile, Saul struggles to keep an intrusive Senator Lockhart at bay. And Dana makes a radical decision that changes her family forever.
2: Saul and Carrie's frustrating and deceptive yet amazing plan to get Carrie ingratiated with Javadi's crew is over. Already, after five episodes of spy-burning, psych ward committing, and front and back nude scanning, Carrie made herself as a plant in the first second that she and Javadi were alone. I was not expecting that, but I didn't want that either. I don't want to call the situation a total ripoff because Saul and Carrie caught their man, and the plan worked perfectly. But damn it, I was looking forward to seeing Carrie play this game for a little bit longer. For as slow as the arduous first act of Homeland's third season was. The second act appears to be zipping right along. I think that pacing should have been reversed. Then there's the lack of Brody, who has shown up only once despite our now being at the halfway point of the season. Yes, less Brody made plenty of sense this year, but this much less? I don't know. It's left the show dangerously unbalanced. But still, Homeland remains something that I look forward to each week despite its herky-jerky progression these days. And much of that appeal lies for me with the character of Saul. Saul's troubled relationship with his wife Mira picks up this week after last week's revelation that she has another man in her life. But Saul refuses to fight for her, stating, I don't have any claim on you, Mira, even after she almost begs him to get angry about the situation or about anything at all. There's been a neutering of Saul that's been going on this season and that you can really feel in this scene that came to a head in the final moments of the episode when Saul finally does get angry and takes Javadi down with one punch. Now Javadi is evil. Not only is Javadi a selfish coward who puts himself ahead of his country he also holds grudges. Knowing he was in trouble he agreed to meet with Saul but first he took a little detour to visit his ex-wife. He shot his ex-wife's daughter-in-law in in the forehead and then stabbed his ex-wife in the neck with a broken bottleneck. Point made, exclamation mark included. This guy is a bad guy. Anyway, Peter and Carrie captured him and brought him back to Saul, at which point he socked Javadi right in the mouth. Elsewhere this week, it was pretty awesome seeing Carrie, who has lately been in such distress, so coldly and confidently turn the tables on Javadi. Though her pregnancy test collection is off-putting not just because it gives one the impression that she is perhaps not seeking the prenatal care that she should, and her mental illness is preventing her from actually dealing with this development, but also because it raises the idea of a Carrie and Brody love child, which, well, ugh, I'm not into that. And speaking of children... Have we seen the last of Dana with this episode as she flies away from the Brody home? Probably not, but her fugitive status and dangerous boyfriend plots do seem to be finished. The name change idea was well handled though, and I'm glad to see Jessica was supportive of it, even though it was doomed to fail. But I'm not sure how much more there is to do with the Brody family at this point. Also, the Brody board in Carrie's living room takes on a new meeting now. It's a Where's My Baby Daddy board instead of something to help acquit Brody of the murder of 200 CIA agents. This is melodrama that this show doesn't need. But otherwise, these have been two solid episodes in a row, maybe three, that have really turned this season around. Now we're going to talk about a show that doesn't need any turning around at all, as it's just going strong and driving ahead into great storytelling. And that's The Walking Dead with this week's episode, Indifference.
0: While on a supplies mission to a local college, members of the group run into multiple hurdles. Things at the present are getting worse.
2: As the credits rolled at the close of this week's Walking Dead, I was left feeling a little bereft. It was in the moment that I realized that I'd subconsciously been rooting for Carol. I'd wanted her to raise up and reveal herself as not so much the hero of the tale, that's generally reserved as Rick's role, but perhaps the hero of this moment in the group's journey. I resisted the idea of her irrevocable choice, so much so that I started to buy the Carol was covering for Lizzie or someone else theory. I now concede that this was by far the more interesting and appropriate call to go this way. Her decision raises rich, complex questions, and if the episode left me a little bit heartbroken, well then so much the better. We want that kind of investment in the shows we watch. Life doesn't serve up faultless heroes. We are human, full of contradictions, virtues, and flaws. That is what Rick and Carol have been this season. Complicated, fascinating, and imperfect humans. If leadership in the apocalypse is about making tough calls without sacrificing your humanity, then Rick's confrontation with Carol is perhaps the most interesting exploration of that balance so far. It also feels like a poetic culmination of his three previous Rick versus X leadership-style battles. Her act was driven by a need to protect the homestead, as Herschel's was. It was about sacrificing the few for the good of the many, as Shane advocated. And she made the call on her own, without the consensus of the council, and in so doing so, she was like the governor. As to that, some may feel that Carol was justified, others Rick— But they both acted on behalf of the community, yet without their consent. Did he have the right to banish Carol any more than she had the right to make the call she did? Carol was correct in that Rick had been burying his head in the sand. He needed to step step up and accept that he could not simply disappear into a world of dirt and cucumbers. She said, you can be a farmer, not just a farmer, though. She needed to awaken him, and awaken him she did, just not in the way she'd hoped. In this world, things change. The young become old, the weak become strong, humans become walkers, and Carol had become something Rick could no longer accept. Her indifference terrified him, perhaps rightfully so. Meanwhile, Carol, despite her emphasis on the importance of facing reality, seemed confused about her relationship with Micah and Lizzie. She claimed them as her own, yet would not allow them to call her mom. She would not say Sophia, calling her dead daughter somebody else's slideshow. Carol faced one truth even as she stuffed down another. She felt she needed to kill, yet she denied the pain of what she'd lost. There are fascinating and nuanced character choices here. We are contradictory creatures as humans. We're often in battle with ourselves, and the show is demonstrating an understanding of that reality. So often what nourishes also destroys us, as the saying goes. We saw that idea unfold in this episode. Tyrese's affection for Karen morphed into deadly rage. Bob was willing to kill and die for a bottle of booze again. Carol's idea of strength became polluted without compassion to temper it. And Michonne's obsession with the governor, one she confessed she didn't understand, became a disservice to herself and the group. Several characters were called upon to let go of something beloved but dangerous this week. Michonne's hunt gave her purpose but carried her away from life and connection, as Daryl pointed out. Tyrese's rage may be his last real connection to the woman he cared for and his belief in a life that is now over, but hanging onto it will lead to bloodshed just as much as grasping onto that walker would have. Bob clung to his booze, and that may be a choice he lives to regret. Ultimately, it's about the frailties we're willing to accept and those we are not. It comes down to trust. Daryl no longer trusts Bob, and Rick can no longer trust Carol. This episode explored universally relatable ideas about the inevitability of change, the necessity of letting go of that which is holding us back and or no longer serves us, even when it rips our hearts out to do so, and taking action versus staying passive. The Walking Dead continues to deliver provocative episodes with an emphasis on subtle but profound emotional shifts and some of the most nuanced character development in the history of this series. Season 4's emphasis on complex responses to this world, the undercurrents of human psychology, and to some degree, answerless questions, has been a welcome change. As always, there's plenty to dig into here and more than we can cover in these reviews. Like I said, another great episode of The Walking Dead. Now we're going to move on to a show that I think has caught most of America by surprise. And a lot of us are really happy that it's back from the baseball hiatus. And that's going to be Sleepy Hollow with the episode The Sin Eater. Ichabod disappears and Katrina contacts Abby in her dreams to warn her that the Headless Horseman is returning and that she should seek out a reclusive man, John Parrish. Meanwhile, Ichabod encounters a figure from his past.
0: TV fans have voted to name Sleepy Hollow as TV Guide's most popular new show. But I agree with them because this show continues to get better every week. With this particular episode doing a good job of evolving Abby and Crave's partnership into a friendship with a great seed about baseball got a much more intense scene at the end of the episode, where Crane really thought he had sacrificed his life to stop the headless horseman. In addition, I was glad to see improvements in the relationship between Abby and her sister, with their annoying squabbling from a few episodes ago being completely eliminated, because Abby was the wisecracking skeptic to the sister being very serious about all the witchcraft that surrounded Saving Crane. Ultimately, though, this episode's success was all about the flashbacks, where affection defection from the Redcoats because his acceptance of being someone who could bear witness was explained. Could that allow the writers of the show to bring a technique they used on Fridge of the memorable one-off character into the horror genre? Many of you may be thinking that the character I'm referring to is the Sin-Eater played by Fridge star John Noble, but I think the title of the memorable one-off character should go to the slave that inspired Cray to join the good guys, because it's not that often that the hero character gets an opportunity to speak with the person they had wronged, Get alone hear the person say they were able to die in peace knowing they had saved the hero with their sacrifice. This was the scene that stuck out to me the most emotionally, and the impact the Slave had on Crane's story is going to be something that will resonate with me because I continue to see him battle demons throughout the course of this entire series. Again, with John Noble kind of being staged a little bit in my book, I really want to see him again as a reoccurring character because the Sinator concept is something that really fascinates me. And I want to see a great actor like John Noble portray this character who has to contend with him being haunted. And just completely weighed down by all the sins of others that are inside Overall, this was another slam dunk of an episode for Sleepy Hollow. Because like the Tomorrow People, which is my other favorite new TV series. This show continues the trend comes surprising me with every turn it takes. So kudos to you, the 350,000 people, who voted Sleepy Hollow as the best new TV series because you certainly know how to recognize high-concept imaginative programming. And since this show is keeping it up God the imagination, I'm very excited to hear the thoughts and crackpot theories Nico has got another great episode of a truly brilliant show.
2: As the weeks go by, we're seeing the world of Sleepy Hollow expand with the mythology, overarching mysteries, and new characters. The core is, and hopefully always will be, Abby and Ichabod. But the introduction of Abby's sister and Captain Irving's faltering skepticism are opening up some intriguing avenues for the story. This week's very strong episode had a lot of things. Baseball, Fringe's John Noble, and some needed advancement in the Abby and Ichabod relationship, especially with what some reviewers are calling the hug heard round the world. Really, what more could you have asked for in this episode?
0: Why are they calling it the hug herd around the world?
2: Uh, it's a baseball, you know, the shot herd around the world. Oh, I gotcha. and, and the whole idea of Ichabod and Abby hugging it out and that j- really emotional hug they had sort of promoting and advancing their relationship.
0: They're not shipping, are they?
2: Uh, absolutely, people are shipping this relationship. <laughs> God, jeez. Dan, you know I'm a sucker for a good flashback, and this episode had plenty of good ones. During the hour, we witnessed Mr. and Mrs. Crane's first meeting and we were enlightened on the circumstances that made Ichabod decide to change sides and fight against the British. We also met the man whose death set Ichabod upon the path he currently travels, the freed slave he was ordered to torture and kill because he'd been accused of treason, and who was killed when Ichabod tried to help him escape. These were fantastic flashbacks that really helped us understand Ichabod in a way we had not yet fully realized. When the show gets something right, it nails it. John Noble's presence would overpower a lesser show, but not here. Noble gets to play a slow burn before turning it loose for the climax, which is always a blast to see. When the casting news was released a few weeks back, it was made known that John Noble's character would become an ally to Abby and Ichabod and would be back for multiple episodes after his initial initial introduction. Hopefully that is still the case because this was a great first appearance and I'd love to continue to see John Noble's return to my TV screen on a weekly or semi-regular basis. Overall, a good hour with guest star John Noble having fun and the circumstances of Ichabod joining the revolution being explained. This episode cut ties with the nasty linkage between Ichabod and the Headless Horseman, which most shows probably would have saved for a season finale. But Sleepy Hollow isn't that kind of show. It's moved at a quick pace right from the start, and it isn't showing any signs of slowing down. By moving this fast, Sleepy Hollow doesn't have time to get bogged down. It doesn't have time to become boring or stale. So I say, keep up the good work, because... We're all super invested in this story.
0: Well, next week seems like a huge action-packed gunfight between the, the police in Sleepy Hollow and the homeless horsemen. So that
2: should be fun. Yeah, I think it's going to be a good good episode.
0: I think it was a good idea for them to disconnect them from each other so they could fight each other. Yes. I, I just think for it, the action standpoint and entertainment standpoint, good call. Yeah. So I agree with you. Great episode. I want more John Noble. Yep. All right, so with that, we're going to move on to a show that on Monday night that's, I think, equally as strong. Might need a little bit more work on the character development. It's getting there. God, this was a sure improvement. I think by mid-season, the show will get its crap together, but we'll see what Nico's thoughts on it are as well. So let's talk now about the Blacklist episode, number 47, Frederick Barnes.
2: A chemical attack on a subway makes the FBI go after the man responsible for it. Tensions grow between Elizabeth and Red after the conflict with Tom.
0: Nico, I love it when the writers of this show listen to us or do what we want them to do, because it gives us a great television watching experience, in addition to providing us with the satisfaction of feeling like we know what the heck we're talking about on this podcast. In other words, this week's blacklist came through on Answering Our Hails for a more frightening weekly villain, because in a serial killer version comes Dr. Wilson from House, who is basically using public locations as a petri dish to find a cure for his son who was born through an affair. Honestly, this killer scientist is probably the best developed weekly blacklist villain we've had so far, and I would expect nothing less from J.R. Orsi, a writer who worked on Fridge. Good credit also needs to go to the casting, because seeing an actor who was well-known for playing a dedicated doctor on House, being a blacklister, made him even scarier, since it made the Frederick Barnes a devil in disguise, especially during the chat he was having with the girl right at the beginning of the episode. He just looked like an innocent man, having an innocent discussion, because the next thing we know he kills a whole train full of people. In addition, a chemical attack is just a horrible way to see someone take out innocent civilians, even with us just watching it occur within the fictional world of television. It's a way I certainly don't want to go out. Now, with all that being said, there was a point in the episode where I wanted to complain that we weren't getting enough of the Frederick Barnes character, because I was worried another great actor would be completely wasted. But they more than made up for it at the end, even though the story put them in a position where they had to kill him off for development of Elizabeth's character, because I still strongly believe this show needs a reoccurring villain. Don't get me wrong what we got here was an improvement, but I think the next stage is for us to get a blacklister that even scares Reddington. Kind of lives on to fight another day. Although in terms of developing Red's character, Frederick Barnes did his job of making us ask the question, what makes Red different than the blacklisters? Especially the ones like Barnes, who want to do good, but go about it the wrong way. And as it stands right now, I don't even think Reddington knows what makes him different as at first it seemed like he understood that giving Elizabeth the opportunity to walk away made him different than Barnes, as he wasn't trying to force a cure on her. But then he burned the house down, where he raised his family, believing that he and the Blacklisters are the same. I guess that means for the time being, Reddington has given up on Elizabeth, helping him find redemption. But I certainly haven't given up on this show, because I find the continued exploration into what makes Reddington different than the Blacklisters absolutely fascinating in a way that will keep me watching if it continues to go down the trail of getting better. So with that, Nico, what was your thoughts on this episode of The Blacklist? Do you think they fixed some of the complaints we had about the weekly villain last week?
2: Dan, I don't know that they really fixed any of our complaints, but rather just did a great job in this week's villain being a better villain of the week than we've seen before. I'm not sure that fixes anything going forward unless they continue this with additional characters in the future. That being said, this week's villain Barnes was played by Robert Sean Leonard of House and is definitely the most effective of the Blacklist villains of the week. More than just any other villain, Leonard filled Barnes with an inherent disappointment in his actions. Almost every other one so far has blamed their actions on being a necessary evil, a sort of unfortunate means to an end. But with Barnes, for the first time, this actually feels accurate. Yeah. In case you missed the bigger message here, Reddington lets Elizabeth know that he can relate to a man who would watch the world burn for the one person he cares about, and guess who that person happens to be? While Barnes was busy murdering dozens of people to protect his son, All Reddington needs to do, apparently, to forget his past is a little suburban real estate purchasing. This show reveals a little and holds back a lot. It teases its audience, making them wonder who is hiding what and who is framing who. This week's episode took us to the house of Red, providing a little glimpse of his life in the past, and then annihilated that house. In the episode, Red said that he spent every day trying to forget what happened in that house. The destruction might not provide a closure, but it will bury some of the memories, and raises a number of questions in the mind of the viewers, you know, because it's a good thing physical destruction can really destroy memories. Right. I admire The Blacklist for trying to make some of these characters, especially Reddington, have a multi-layered nature that makes them more sympathetic. But at the same time, the show hasn't taken enough time to actually build character. We're about one-third done with this first season, and there's hardly anything we know about any of these characters. I mean, at this point, the most we know about the past of Elizabeth is that her father abandoned her as a child. She and her husband went on a vacation at the same time and place as a person who died, and they have named their Ikea lamp Ike. But we need more than just silly little details. It's great that we know Reddington has regrets about his past, but expand on that. I would love for The Blacklist to have a bottle episode. I don't care where. Let's say a broken down elevator or whatever. It doesn't matter. But Elizabeth and Reddington just need to tell us more about each other. I did complain about it in the pilot when they attempted to do a Silence of the Lambs quid pro quo, but that's exactly what we need at this point, I think. The Blacklist so badly wants us to care about these characters, their background, and how their pasts have destroyed them, but it needs to give us more information to actually accomplish that. Take the time away from the rampant, criminal-filled Washington, D.C. that has seemingly sprung up out of nowhere to work on the characters we're going to see every week, rather than focusing on the weekly mystery that doesn't truly have any larger importance. That's how this show will make lasting improvements we are looking for, Dan. That, and we've, as we've been talking about for weeks, stop killing the Blacklisters every week and actually develop some villains along with the good guys. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean I feel like this was an improvement. I just don't know if it's a consistent enough improvement. I don't know. It, it's it's this is a tricky conundrum the show is
2: yeah I think they're doing the right things to set some of this up. It's just taking a long time to get there.
0: Because it thought the trailer they're showing for this week's next episode sounds like we're gonna get answers okay because they said we're gonna answer the big question who is her father but i'm worried (laughs) they're just gonna trick us yeah they're not gonna come through and if they do that i'm gonna be a little upset
2: well you know NBC's marketing department they suck (laughs) i know (laughs) you know i haven't yet i think i'm I'm still okay i only am losing patience i think when i go to review the episode okay like i'm enjoying it in the moment but When I think back after the fact, I'm like, you know, we didn't get any progression. Man, they tricked me again.
0: (laughs) Darn it, these guys. Exactly. got me again.
2: But I am enjoying the show. So in that sense, they're doing something right.
0: Uh, Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll work out.
2: Yeah all right i think with that it's about time we move into a show that actually surprised me this week with a less than stellar episode Nah, not not really they just had a character come back that was completely different than he was in the pilot and that really frustrated me so let's talk about the return of a fan favorite character from the pilot in the episode coach
0: Coach returns to the loft, apparently not the same guy anymore. Got Jess and CeCe meet a handsome stranger on their night out.
2: This week's New Girl saw the long-awaited return of Coach, played by Damon Wayans Jr., Of course, this reunion couldn't have come at a worse time for Nick and Schmidt, who were still apparently mad at each other after Schmidt decided to move across the hall. But that didn't stop Coach from attempting to steal every scene he was in. Unfortunately, this new version of Coach was not nearly as fun or funny as the Coach from the pilot. However, I do think they resolved that issue within this episode to my satisfaction. One amusing thing about Coach was his nickname for Winston, Shrimp Forks, due to Winston's tiny hands. But the real highlight of this episode was during the guy's visit to the Velvet Rabbit Strip Club as Coach indulged in booze and lap dances while Nick and Schmidt tried to come up with a plan to ditch Strip Club and go home. The best was Nick's shot contest idea a la Raiders of the Lost Ark, which Schmidt insisted was a pro-Nazi film. Ironically, or perhaps just drunkenly, they were mostly referring to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which has no Nazis in it. I will say this episode finished strong as Coach admitted that his girlfriend broke up with him and not the other way around. The boys' drunken sack-tapping at the police station and their subsequent escape were hilarious, as was the visuals of them all wearing Velvet Rabbit swag their entire time there. Not quite as strong or funny episode as I come to expect from this series, but still not a terrible one. Hopefully this, they'll fix this issue with Coach as he has been picked up for the rest of the season to guest star. Alright, with that we're gonna move on to South Park with the better episode than last week, <laughs> at least not as risque and vulgar, with the episode Ginger Cow. Come on
0: down south by there and meet some friends, man. Cartman's latest prank has brought about the unnecessary spiritual conditions. For world peace, religious leaders descend upon South Park to witness a biblical prophecy that has been fulfilled. Cartman and Kyle are the only two at odds because their world embarks upon a thousand years of peace and harmony.
2: On the surface, Ginger Cow had a few good jokes fueling the fire, although they were pretty one note. Using Cartman's latest prank of dressing up a cow like a ginger and using it to incite a prophecy among all the world's religions was a humorous start to the shenanigans that followed. This episode only had a couple of good laugh out loud moments, however, the cow being sacrificed via airdrop, Van Halen's 10 year celebration, etc. But it was more the concepts behind Ginger Cow that kept it engaging. While Cartman and Kyle's yummy, yummy fart shtick was only somewhat amusing, it did propel Kyle's inner struggle to receive a sizable amount of flatulence in exchange for Cartman's silence about the truth. Ironically, what we learned at the end of this episode was that the truth would have set Kyle free. By making the prophecy a natural occurrence instead of a God-honest miracle, the whole episode was turned on its head, for better or worse, and made us entirely rethink the religious context. Unfortunately, the implications here were broad and scattered, without a real concrete point. Much like some of the other episodes this season, Ginger Cow introduced some promising stuff that never really quite panned out. One thing in particular that bothered me, though, was that Cartman never got his comeuppance at the end of this episode. Lately, it seems like no matter how foul or despicable his actions, Cartman always gets away with everything he does. Here in Ginger Cow, it felt unbalanced. Instead of being properly punished like he has been countless times before in earlier episodes and earlier seasons, he merely rubbed one last whipped creamed fart into Kyle's face and walked away. This is more of a nitpick item than anything else for me, but it nevertheless added to the unresolved nature of this storyline. All said and done, South Park's Ginger Cow had a lot going for it in terms of the concept, and this episode certainly hammered on a topic well worth discussing. Unfortunately, 22 minutes wasn't quite enough time to say all that needed to be said, but still better than last week's vulgar episode, though admittedly less funny than that episode. All right, with that, we're going to move on to an episode of Revolution entitled The Patriot Act. Rachel uncovers some unsettling truths and shares a moment with Charlie. In other events, Neville and Jason continue their father-son struggles.
0: Aside from the Neville storyline, which continues to go nowhere fast, I thought this was another rock-solid episode of Revolution. As it came right out of the gate, resolving my issues with the quarreling going on between Rachel and Charlie. By it being explained that Rachel had already intended on preventing Monroe from being executed. It kept him alive because that's what Charlie wanted. From here, we were introduced to a new big bad for who once didn't waste a great actor like Zelio Ivanovic. As he played a chief science advisor to the Patriots. Good TV.com gets described as a bad grandpa for coming across as this. Soft-spoken, insignificant man who is concealing an obsession with receiving recognition can be quite the creeper, especially when it comes to Rachel Matheson. In other words, I guess this character of Dr. Horde could be connected to Batman villains, could the vein of the Riddler, Mad Hatter, or Scarecrow, whose attention whoring had just played creeping on women, drove them into villainy. Speaking of the superhero genre, I think the most captivating part of this episode was when Aaron used the nanites to burn the soldiers attacking his wife alive. In my opinion, I felt it was the, it was very smart cause significant to have Monroe watch it happen, because now both Aaron and Monroe are now viewed as monsters, making me foresee some great scenes ahead, where these characters connect, could possibly help each other with this issue. By the way, Monroe had me cracking up throughout the whole episode with his drugged-out one-liners, and they played a huge part in me just continuing to love this character. Last season, there were points where I absolutely hated Quinroe as the paranoid villain. But now I can't wait for the scenes where he's on screen, because he just brings so much to the experience of watching this show. As for thoughts about other characters, I was glad to see they explained Rachel's father being allied to the Patriots, as something more than him just being a giant douchebag, with the flashback showing he sided with them to provide his town with much needed medicine. However, I wonder if he's going to get the chance to explain himself to Rachel and Miles, or if they're going to end up having him kill him as collateral damage to their plan of attacking the Patriots. I personally want to see Gene die heroically, doing the right thing in the end, or end up having him survive to seek redemption, because Stephen Collins is a great actor, who I believe has also added a lot to revolution here in this second season. Although as dark as this show has gotten, which is something I enjoy, I'm foreseeing the good doctor going out as collateral damage. Nico share with us your thoughts on this episode of Revolution where the good stuff kept coming our way could this turn around of a second season
2: wait what you mean Monroe isn't dead <laughs> what You mean Dr. Gene isn't really a bad guy? Uh, Okay. None of that was very surprising, of course, because we didn't expect either of the huge developments that took place at last week's Dead Man Walking to actually really be true. We even discussed that last week in our discussion. Obviously, Monroe wasn't dead. No one in their right mind believed that that to be the case. And many of us, Dan and I included, even guessed what really did happen. Rachel injected him with enough drugs to fool everyone and slow his heart down so low as to appear dead, and then all Rachel had to do was dig him up and he was right as rain again. A few minutes of bed rest and Monroe was awake and professing his love to Miles, which we all know is the best barometer of Monroe's health. This, of course, is a great thing because it means we get more Monroe, who, much like you, Dan, I am loving this season and I think may be my new favorite character for season two. As for the second revelation in this episode that Gene is not really a bad guy, I was sort of disappointed with the immediate reversal of attitude toward Dr. Gene, who was exposed as the mole who caused all the Patriot headaches in Willoughby in the first place. Think how amazing this story arc would have been if Gene turned out to be a bad guy. Imagine just for a second that Gene was actually a bad guy and that Revolution had run with that. It would have rocketed the series into pretty interesting territory because Gene would have filled the hole in season 2 where a villain should be. Although it appears that Dr. Horn will fill that role instead. Instead, this episode spent many minutes flashing back in order to compassionately explain why Gene sided with the Patriots and convinced us not to hate him. These flashbacks were effective in explaining Gene's actions, but they were also the easy way out. Of course, this will allow Gene to either die heroically as Dan you said, you hope happens in saving Rachel and Charlie, or he will have the opportunity for a redemption story in some manner. Either way, will probably make for great TV, But how amazing would it have been to see something we don't see very often? Sure, the Patriots are, as we've all agreed, a fantastic addition and a great evil collection that combines all the worst traits of Republicans, Democrats, Nazis, and the people who don't like cats or dogs or fish or whatever. But the individuals who represent the Patriots are all drones taking orders from some mystery person we should really be upset with. Is anyone here really scared of Ed Truman? No. Or Secretary Allen Ford? No. They're just lieutenants, and they themselves have not done anything that bad. This awesome addition of Joko Ivanic doing his trademark evil stares as the recently arrived Dr. Horm seems promising and will probably be that guy we all want to hate this season, but no one this season fits the bill like Monroe was that pillar of evil last season. In a series that is so simply good versus evil, we need evil. Throw a black hat on someone and make that someone perform some horrible atrocities right front of us so we can tremble in our boots revolution give us our big bad i need someone to hate on revolutions besides the people we're supposed to really like although I'm, I'm hating them a lot lot less this year yes gene had the chance to be that temporary fill-in for whatever big bad is coming down the line and he would have made a good candidate it would have been a ballsy move by a show that looks to be making some ballsy moves this season good episode that i think could have been great yeah
0: the, the only thing i'm saying to that with gene is i feel like it would have made miles look stupid if he did not have an inclination it was coming
2: well even if miles even miles still could have figured it out but gene just wasn't good he he okay. wasn't doing it for a good reason so you still find out that he's he's so
0: you could have done the, it the same way just at the flashbacks
2: right okay. yeah or have flashbacks to show why he fact. joined the patriots but not make them for a noble cause.
0: Okay. Yeah. I get you.
2: Yeah. So I just thought that that was a different way they could have gone that I think would have made it even better.
0: Yeah. I think they were scared to go that way because of uh, Kripke's other show. Probably just like that with the grandfather. With Samuel. Uh,
2: yeah. I, I guess. I guess. It, you know, but that was after Kripke's time. I know. So. I don't know.
0: I, I just feel like they didn't feel that they were safe enough with their audience to pull us really risky stuff like that
2: i i can agree with that i can definitely agree with that but i do think that this season season two this show is making some ballsy moves like that right. and this would have been okay i think it i would think have been the okay. fans maybe, want the
0: ballsy moves
2: yeah i think so i think people would have been okay with them going that route maybe the network wasn't okay with it maybe the network thought that that yeah. was too too much of a move, and it would have made him an unlikable character, which is what we're calling for. We need a big bad that is unlikable, right. but since he's not the big bad, he's just a fill-in temporary guy, then maybe that's why they felt like it was going to too far
0: and maybe there's something big coming with the zello covenic character yeah maybe it worked better for it to go this way
2: yeah i definitely think that he is the big bad for this season and i don't think we're going to get to anyone higher up the chain of command than dr horn
0: Because sometimes it it looks real good like in the individual episode or in the makings of it and then you get three or four episodes down the road kind of falls apart or it doesn't work out.
2: Yeah, and sometimes like what you were suggesting about this episode, it looks like it was a big mistake them not doing something and then we get four or five episodes down the way and we see, oh, that's why they didn't go that route because they're going this route and that's exactly what you were saying and I I think that, that you're probably right. That's probably why they're going this route and not doing what I thought would be great Rate in this episode they're they're saving it for a bigger payoff later
0: but what you're saying right now i mean it makes sense at the time yeah at this point in time it makes sense and i'm seeing both sides and with that i think we're going to move on to talking about a show that really needs to work itself out on the special effects
1: yeah
2: absolutely we're going to bring Andy in to help discuss once upon a time in wonderland with the episode the serpent When the Knave's life is in danger, Alice has to make the tough decision on whether to use one of her three precious wishes and what that would mean for her and Cyrus. Her new friendship with Lizard reveals some of the Knave's backstory and Cyrus plots to escape. Meanwhile, Jafar's plan to kill the Knave puts the Red Queen in a difficult position as she grapples with her feelings for him and her desire to get what she wants. In flashbacks, we explore Jafar's origins and find out what he truly wants from Cyrus.
3: Before we start discussing about this episode, who the heck names themselves lizard? <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. All right. So first off, let's talk about the extended origin with his female mentor. First off, I think it was great that they actually gave him a female mentor instead of a male one because it feel like in so in so many TV shows or movies that we always see the villain, the male villain, always go to a male mentor, mentor, or even um, a female villain goes to a male figure or whatever, but I feel this time it was, it was like a good swap basically, and I, I, it, I, I feel this actress was familiar in a way. Have you seen her before?
2: I can. I can't really place her at the moment, but I definitely know I have seen her before.
3: Okay, And but I, I liked her though. I think she and Jafar had an interesting relationship, and it was a twist that he was the son of the Sultan. I, I'm wondering if it's the same one from, I don't know, maybe the Aladdin movie. Maybe he is Jasmine's long time in a long time brother or something, that could be interesting if it's the same Sultan. Maybe it's a there's a new one now. But what did you think?
2: I think that he may have actually been the brother of that Sultan. It from the from the Disney movie. So he's actually the bastard son or bastard brother of the Sultan that he ultimately controls in the movie, and that would make him actually going after his niece, which. Makes it a little strange, but at least a little bit better than him uh, having feelings for his sister. But uh, that's going off in a tangent we don't need to explore. I like <laughs> I, I like Jafar's origin here, and I thought it was interesting, as you said, to give him a female mentor that essentially seduced him into the dark arts and seduced him into becoming a villain. He wanted the power to go after the Sultan and get his revenge, but he was still a kind-hearted boy and became a kind-hearted man until that moment we saw in this episode where he had to choose between the power she was offering him and the life of his friend. And he chose that power, and that was his moment, his turned to the dark side, his Sith moment, if you will, from the Star Wars mythology. He decided power and revenge were more important than friendship and doing the right thing. And he struggled with it, but ultimately he gave into it. And I liked that idea that he wasn't always an evil kid that became an evil man. No, he was a good kid that turned dark and just continued to get darker and darker in his quest for more and more power.
3: Yeah, and for somebody like me who is a big fan of um, the Atlanta movies and this villain, we never had this layer in those movies and I think it's great that these writers are now expanding on this, one of these one of the, the most iconic, villain, iconic villains in Disney mythology. So I think that was great. And we now also get an origin to how he got his wand, his stick.
2: I really liked that I love that his his staff was the essence, the magical essence of his mentor that
3: he betrayed. I think. Do you think she might be able to break out at some point? Like, like I, I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule it out either. I think that it would
2: take a huge magical influx or something to help her escape. She needs external help. She could not do it herself. I don't believe. I think she would need the help of another. To help her escape that, and I wonder if she would ultimately turn to be a good person after being betrayed by Jafar and seeing the error of her ways, or if she would just be evil again and make another foe for all of the uh, heroes in this story. It's, it's an interesting idea.
3: We do see that she that the one the stick the stick did blink. Uh huh. And I'm wondering, is that a sign?
2: It is a sign that
3: I think her consciousness
2: is still alive in the staff and that she is trapped and forced to do Jafar's bidding.
3: Yeah. But let's move over to Alice's arc in this one. She had to use a wish and she had to confront Jafar. If this episode was not convincing if this episode didn't convince you guys that Alice is a BA character that can lead her own show, then I don't know what you guys are smoking what else you are demanding because this episode I never had a I never I never doubted her since the pilot, but this one should really convince people, I think.
2: Yeah, I think so. I'm a little concerned with the development that they used a wish this early. I was thinking we'd get all the way to at least the mid season finale, maybe all the way to the finale before she used a wish. They have to last throughout uh multiple seasons if she's going to if they're going to continue that way without Jafar somehow getting the genie. And so I'm I'm just a little concerned that they used it so early. But maybe because they used one early, it'll continue her fight to not use them going forward.
3: It could be a sign also for the fact that we haven't heard a uh, nine episode b- backorder. It's doesn't it look it, – we haven't really heard much about the show. How – you know, what the people of ABC think about the show so far – so maybe this could be a sign that the, the wish things are a season one arc only, and that they, because I think they're aiming to do this this story as its own thing, and then if they do get a season two, there will be something else that will yeah. expand on, on that.
2: Yeah, Andy, you, you're probably right. You're you're probably right. I'm probably thinking that this is going to be a multiple season arc, and you're probably right that it is going to be self contained in this first season. And actually, now the more that I think about that, that's actually a good thing. I think we could see more story for Alice as they go on to a new adventure in season two. Much like in the original Once Upon a Time, they the curse was only a season one aspect and the the story expanded out and became much more vast once they were able to break that curse in the season one finale
3: yeah and before we wrap it up we have two issues i have two issues that i want to talk about i I think at least one of them you do agree on is the continuing cgi problems although it wasn't as horrible as it was last time
2: oh see i would say the uh, opposite i said i said it was
3: getting even worse in this episode they need to find locations in Vancouver that they can just build stuff at because it looks when they're in the forest running or whatever, and when they're in the woods running or whatever, that's when I, I think I enjoy the show the most. But when they're yep. walking down those lanes or whatever, I'm like, how hard can it be to just paint things or whatever?
2: Yeah, they, or, or or build sets, a, a sound studio with that as you know actually built out and painted would look much better than the cgi we're getting and so my my thought is just go get a soundstage and do everything that needs to be wonderland-esque in that and then cut out this bad cgi because obviously you don't have the budget to do it well otherwise you'd be doing it well so find some sets as you said find some locations that they can do it you're absolutely right when the when Alice and the Knave were running through the woods trying to escape the catchers, that was some of the best scenery we'd seen in a while. And so – and in the house last week was very good stuff. It's the CGI that is causing the show to look ridiculous. I think that that's where they need to do the most work is in re- relying less on CGI and focusing more on actual built sets or actual locations.
3: Yeah, and because and I and I hate that I have to pull pull this up right away. But this week the show got got even worse ratings. I think they dropped to a fr- three three plus million thing. Yeah, and like they they need to move it. They need to move the show somewhere else and get better better effects or like you said, sound shade or whatever. Because and this is what makes me so frustrated. It's a great show. You have an amazing cast, although we, we, you know, the queen can be discussed. But like, it makes me frustrated for these actors that we might see a cancellation because ABC, who I thought was actually into the show, that really cared about the show, because and you know, they were even talking about rushing it to doing 22 episodes or whatever, and now just screwing the show over. Yeah, it
2: is disappointing because I really liked the concept. We originally talked about the fact that we weren't When we first heard the announcement, neither of us were really all that excited about the show. But once we saw that first glimpse of what it could be, we got a little more information. We started to get really excited about the potential because we did see it as a lot of fun and a really good concept. I think the concept is being executed fairly well. It's just a lot of stuff like the CGI maybe this evil queen being a less impressive character than some of the other ones we've met is really sort of dragging the rest of the show down. And I don't know if it's going to get picked up with the way things are currently sitting. We've seen crazier things, but I just don't know if it has enough momentum to make it to a season two. If, or even get a back nine pickup if
3: well back on, back back order is that that has gone that's not happening. At all. Oh, it,
2: it's not okay.
3: Well, it's I have there is I'm basing it on the fact that the ratings have been have have been horrible for the past four weeks. Right. So, but and, and before we wrap it up, I'm really not sure. i I think this Evil Queen Emma Rigby's Emma Rigby's character needs a lot of work, and the problem is that we not there's no time for it. I think that. I wouldn't be surprised if they're already done with all their episodes now. And the problem is that they should have cast somebody older. Like, here's the thing: they've we got freaking Lana Perilla, who is now one of the most sensational ca- sensational characters on Once Upon a Time. We got the actress for Cora. We have so, so many amazing actresses for all these female villains, and even male, male and they, all these male actors for these male villains as well. And you get an actress who is, like, one year older, one year younger than the actress actress who plays Alice. And, like, I'm sorry. She's not the evil queen. She's the cosplay queen.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I don't have a problem with her being young. I I don't have a problem with that. I do have a problem with the quality of the character so far. And I don't want to put it all on the actress at this point because I haven't seen her in anything else to know whether she's – here a better quality than, than what we are seeing here. But we know that the, some of the other actors are doing much better with the material they're being given. Maybe the writers are having trouble writing for this evil queen because they're holding some stuff back that we're going to get in future episodes, much like the, the reveal we got last week of who Anastasia was. That was a good thing. It just didn't play out as well as we had hoped because The evil queen character is not all that great right now. So I'm not sure where to put the blame. Uh, So we'll just throw it at the entire character at the moment between the actor, the writing and all of it is just not what we were expecting. Or we've come to expect from what we've seen from the other characters and the other stories and the other actors on this show.
3: I think they should have just. I think I know why they did this because they wanted to have this relationship between her and Will. But I think they should have scrapped that idea and got somebody who's who can actually fill the role of being intimidating. Because it feels like that she's just jealous or she's just. There's no reason for her to fear Alice. Uh, Alice is no threat to her at all. There's no reason why she should go after her. Whatever.
2: Right. They failed to really explain that aspect of the story.
3: Yeah, and. But you know what? I'm really enjoying the show so far, and you know what? If the show gets canceled, at least we will get to enjoy, a, you know, a solid season anyway. It's just that, yeah. You know, I, I, and I, I'm I'm sorry, guys, if we keep bringing up the CGI problems all the time. It, actually, it doesn't really take me out of the story all the time. But it's just like I can notice that. Well, look at that fake tree. Look at the tree that Nico could have probably been drawn better, drawn better <laughs> that you brought up last time. Right. But yeah. But overall, I'm. You know, what? I'm trying. I'm going to be optimistic and hope for the best, and hopefully it will turn out to be to turn out to be something good later on. But ABC needs to they they need to work. They need to fix this. Yeah, I agree. So see you guys next week.
0: All right. So thanks for joining us for that, Andy. Once upon a time, thanks for helping Nico out. Okay, now it's time for the tomorrow people with a pretty decent episode that was quite violent and shocking, and established that scary villain that causes the slaughter pretty well. So let's talk now about the Tomorrow People episode. All tomorrow's parties.
2: Jedakai's mysterious boss insists on meeting Steven when he breaks Ultra Protocol. Meanwhile, the Tomorrow People plan to go topside to a party like normal folks, but John and Kara think it's too dangerous, and Steven makes plans to attend Homecoming with Astrid.
0: The Tomorrow People is a show that keeps me watching, because it keeps me guessing on a regular basis. Because just when you think something is going to go one way, the writers end up turning it on its head. On that note, this week's episode was no stranger to surprise, as it made us guys out there fall in love with Kara through her winning against John in the fight, and then rocking out that dark blue dress. But then our feelings for her were shattered to pieces, when she cured one of her own Tomorrow People, get revenge for selling her out, making the beautiful superpowered girl almost no better than Jedekiah. I figured we were going to see a dark side in one of the Tomorrow People, that could lead them into becoming a villain, who believes humanity can't be redeemed, but I thought that was going to come from John, for being an imperfect version of his race, that has the ability to kill. Not Kara, who I thought was a pure example of one of the Tomorrow People. Come on, writers. The cute girl is the character that's going to go to the dark side? Just say it isn't so. Say it isn't so. The only problem is, the evidence is stacked pretty hard against Kara. Not just through curing the traitor, but John's reaction to Kara finding out he could kill. Revealing this guilt that says he doesn't want to hurt anybody. Cause is basically tired of fighting. Also, with Astrid becoming a love interest for Steven, With him revealing her secret, I could easily see Kara slipped into becoming a victimized femme fatale who may get Steven sort of off the path of becoming the Chosen One for a little while in leading his people to the Promised Land. Again, this is where I view the show going as of now, and after watching the next episode, I'm almost positive something's going to happen to put my predictions in a completely different place. Because as you probably noticed, some of my theories are completely different than some of the stuff I brought up regarding Job last week. That's why I'm quick to reserve my complaints got Jedekiah's boss, got Ultra having abilities, because I think humans should run the show at Ultra. Since it seems to better fit Jedekai's evil motivation to make people with abilities get the super soldiers. In addition, I believe a villain who seeks power is more interesting than one who already has it. But then again, as I've said before, nothing ever goes the direction I think it will with this show. Right now, I've got about four or five theories kind on of how the writers could go back to a human being a top dog kind on of Ultra. The best theory being something that goes back to the NBC show's heroes, where the humans who hunted down with people with abilities for the company, which is a group kind of like Ultra, was always teamed with someone who had abilities. So maybe this boss is just Jedekiah's supervising partner, because kind of there's someone else above both of them. However, regardless of how this hierarchy of Ultra gets mapped out, or which character goes to the dark side. Every surprise this show has thrown my way, I've ended up liking. So I'm sticking with this show for the long haul, because after all the TV I've watched, gets studied, gets nice to be caught off guard once in a while, as the Tomorrow People's unpredictability, because what makes it a lot of fun for me? So Nico, what was your thoughts on another surprising episode of the Tomorrow People? And what do you think Kara's dark moment means for her? As well as the other characters.
2: Dan, I don't think that Kara using the serum on the quote unquote traitor this week means that she is in danger of going dark for the series or losing her way from the good guy's side. I think it was an in the moment rage sort of thing, and that it will cause trouble going forward with some of the people being afraid of her, or maybe her having to deal with losing the serum and not being able to prevent people from getting quote unquote cured but i do not see her going dark besides it's too early for that it's it's season 1 not season 3 right i also think that you may be jumping the gun on Astrid being a love interest for Steven. Yes, he told her his secret, but I think they are still just going to be friends. Of course, there's always the possibility for a love story to develop out of this, which I think is what you were getting at. Yeah. But at this point, he just needed a friend he could confide in, and Astrid was already involved because Steven knew she had seen him teleport and had followed him that night. So my guess is that this love interest development is a little premature at this point, but could be a future season possibility, or at least a jealousy thing with Kara when the steven and Kara thing happens because we all know that there's way more than just respect for each other yeah. going on there anyway another good episode that added to the mythos by introducing a tomorrow people head of ultra this surprised me and got me wondering what the true purpose of ultra might be can't wait to see things play out as this series continues to add to its universe and i do like your idea of the heroes aspect with a an affected person and a an human working together, or a tomorrow person and a human working together as the way it is, and maybe this is just jedekiah's tomorrow person.
0: And all the theories I came up with from what was shown in this episode, I do believe it will be season two or three things. Okay. Th- these these were just flashes of what I think could be the making of those things. But I still believe there's going to be a tomorrow person that's going to go Magneto on this show. Okay. That I, just, I feel like that, that scenario that we saw in the movie, X-Men First Class with Magneto is going to happen with one of the characters. Okay, and, I can and,
2: see that too yeah.
0: And my theory on who that is has changed about four times so now it's Kara this week and as I said before, it could change next week so we'll just have to see how this rides out or they could maybe bring it in a completely other separate character to solve that so we'll see. Okay. Yeah.
2: Alright, with that I think we're about ready to move on to elementary with the return of Sherlock's brother in the Marchioness.
0: Mycroft shows up in New York to ask Holmes and Watson to solve a case concerning his former fiance. Mycroft and Joe's relationship is a source of connection with Sherlock.
2: In the past, we've discussed the nature of Elementary Sherlock and how his empathy helps to set him apart from other incarnations of the character, which tend to have a very limited sense of respect for other people, let alone a personal connection or a sense of intimacy. Elementary's Sherlock didn't exhibit empathy right away. It's been a part of his recovery, which figures into his growth as a character. The relationships and the willingness to share have to be earned, both in Sherlock's eyes as a man who's concerned about being hurt and falling into drugs again, and as an aspect of his identity. It's why his speech during his addiction meeting at the top of the episode about whether or not he should have been born in a different time was so important. He was sharing feelings, and he was doing it in a space that he considers safe, a space that even Joan isn't a part of. It's why Mycroft's sudden appearance at the meeting was so rattling for Sherlock. He loves Mycroft on any number of levels, and he certainly doesn't want his estranged brother to know his weaknesses, even though Mycroft would very much like to earn that place in Sherlock's life. So it was fitting, then, that the episode began with a speech and ended with a query on what exactly they could discuss. Oh, right, the case itself. It was good. I liked the horse breeding aspect, of course, which gave it a nice spin, but it did sort of cause the episode to sort of sag just a little bit as Sherlock and Joan sorted out the El Meconico's fingerprints twist. The episode needed its twist in the case, and this was a fine twist that took some clever work on Sherlock's part to figure out. But ultimately, it will be the personal interactions between Sherlock and Mycroft that led to character development on both sides that will be the thing that we remember from this episode. A fairly solid episode with only a mediocre mystery in the end. Okay, moving on. We're going to hit up Grimm for this week's edition as we talk about a dish best served cold.
0: Nick and Hank investigate an age-old feud that has erupted in Seattle, a feud that Nick and Monroe are well acquainted with. Meanwhile, the death of a royal family member has repercussions across the world. Monroe and Rosalie discuss the next step in their relationship.
2: Apparently, Eric Renard is dead for real. Really? That was just so anticlimactic. I guess we're sort of all about anticlimactic deaths on TV this season. So no... Adeline, no badassness, no monster babies, and you guys, I was crossing all my fingers for monster babies when that first blue blot blew up in the tree, you know, alien style, but alas, I was denied that as well in favor of a semi-supernatural food poisoning homicide. The revenge in question this week turned out to be Monroe's. Monroe got an a story of his very own this week. The ancient feud between the Blutbot and the Bauschwein, first seen in, this, in the season one's The Three Bad Wolves, returned to the forefront when a bunch of foodie Blutbods, including our very own Monroe, went for a bite at the schmancy new Raven and Rose restaurant. Most of them ended up with the worst and last bloat of their lives, except for Monroe, who managed to avoid being poisoned due to his vegan diet. Rosalie, who Monroe invited to move in with him, kept Monroe from falling off the carnivore wagon. But Monroe only narrowly avoided a return to that fine old Blutbot tradition of killing all the Bauerschwein when he discovered that the Bawerschwein chef at Raven and Rose was targeting Blutbot customers for the sins of their race. Monroe's reformed bluebot status hasn't really been much of an issue lately, so it was nice to see all the hard work he's been doing. It was also nice to see Grimm itself present Monroe and Nick as pioneers of sorts, promoting a new way of doing things in the Vessen world. The respective stances are in direct contrast with the Royals, who are very much symbols as well as active custodians of the old way. Sean Renard promised us viewers that with Eric gone, the remaining royals will duke it out to the side on a new leader. The idea of there being very little, if any, loyalty among the royals and their people has been a running theme. Just look at everything Adeline has gotten tangled up with during her time overseas. Their general attitude has always come off as every man for himself, and so far no one has theorized that maybe, just maybe, everyone would be stronger, not to mention happier, if they were all part of a unified front. The blutblatt Bauerschwein conflict has certainly been neutralized a bit, to the point where sure, it's frowned upon for Blutblatt to kill Bauerschwein and vice versa, but that's only really here in Portland. Except that by comparing their conflict to real-life human ones, like those in the Middle East and Ireland and Rwanda and other areas of the world that are perpetually plagued with awful violence and unrest, Grimm made a conscious effort to continue on the path it started traveling down last season where this weird little show about folktales takes on real and serious topics in the world outside of TV. I mean, guys, most of the conflicts Nick's mentioned actually happen and continue to happen for specific reasons. That doesn't make them any easier to stop, but to simply write off entire populations as hopeless is kind of messed up. And that was sort of the point Grimm was making here. Monroe and Nick represent a distinct cultural shift when it comes to Vessen, Vessen, and Vessen-Grim relations. Monroe has been working to cast off the Blutbot image of a brutal, bullying killer for years, and while he came close to taking out the Bowerschwein this week, he ultimately stuck to his principles. When explaining the situation to Juliet, Nick came right out and said that his ancestors would have just killed the Vessen in question and called it a day. But Nick has shown time and again, including this week, that his approach is much more humane, understanding, and nuanced. He doesn't mind doing things the hard way if he believes said things are worth doing. Even Monroe talks smack on how the Blutbot and the Bauerschwein would always be at odds, insisting that nothing Nick did would make a difference in the big picture. But Nick isn't trying to change the big picture, at least not yet. He's just trying to get the killing to stop in Portland. As his conflict with the Royals heats up, that could change, but for now, Nick is very much a small picture kind of guy. While it's still er- too early in the season to make any sweeping predictions about where Grimm's overarching plot is headed, the Old Ways versus New Ways story seems to be a sort of story that will come and go as the season progresses. Also, while Nick has been living in the world for a few seasons now, A Dish Best Served Cold excelled at really showing us how Nick and his allies fit, or want to fit, within this Vesson world. That's all for this week. Another good episode of Grimm. Now we're going to wrap the rundown section with Andy and Wu's Glee review.
4: Thank you, Nico and Dan, for that fine, fine introduction. My name is Willis Kim, and alongside me is Mr. Andy Babak. We are back with the New Direction section, and Andy, could you please give us the episode description for this week's episode of Glee?
1: A
3: Katie or a Gaga? The members of New Directions tackle their, tackle their assignment of getting out of their comfort zones and determining whether they are more like Katy Perry or Lady Gaga. Kurt. Kurt holds audition for his new band and must decide if he will let in the overly bold performer Starchild. Meanwhile, Jake gets closer to Bree as he and Molly grow apart.
4: I thought this episode was nice. A uh, a uh, uh, great a great bridge back to what the what the series what the series was after the Beatles episodes. Uh- Overall, I enjoyed it. Even though the stuff with Sam and Penny was kind of weird. That was my only uh, that was my only real correct about the episode. What did you think primarily about the whole Katie vs. Gaga story, Lady like Andy?
3: I liked it. And and I said this to you off microphone that I'm that I really need the show to be what, like it, what, I need the show to be fun again for me because this is a show that represents a lot of what I stand for and so on. And despite the tragic death I still need the show to be what it was. Yes. And um, it's, I, I like that. I think it was really fun. There's some, I have some nitpicks about it, like a certain awfully acted breed, first of all. And now I'm on your
4: bandwagon in terms of Brie. I do not like this actress. I do not like her character. Like, she's like the opposite of what Kitty was in the fourth season. Whereas Kitty had some redeeming qualities. And that, you know, that that is totally due to Becca's hope And I really just do not like this actress or this character. What did you think about the... Speaking of Brie, what did you think of the Marley and Jake breakup? Because we had said, like towards the end of last season that they the writers really haven't done anything with that relationship and i i think i was happy to see it go i do i do and i told you this off microphone i do think part of the reason that they broke them up was just so so that they could get um marley and Ryder together and if, and if you know anything about those two actors you know why
3: <laughs> yeah i I'm not it's they may not necessarily get together, uh, it may not be the reason why they broke up, but I think it's because we haven't really seen anything with these two characters since that Valentine's episode when they were having some qualms or whatever. In good, grief, and I,
4: in good grief, that was like, what, over a year ago now?
3: It it feels like it was a year ago, but it was, like, back in February or something. It's
4: it's almost a year ago. And I'm not saying Ryder and Marley are going to get together for sure, but it would make the most sense that they would do that. Um, I I, I like the way that Jake and Marley broke up, because neither of them were really wrong. Neither of them were, like, out of, you know, out of bounds in what they were saying. Like, Marley doesn't isn't really comfortable with herself to actually go to that pl- intimate place with someone. And I can understand Jake's frustration just because when you're a 17-year-old guy and you, wa- you want to, like, be intimate with your girlfriend because you love her that much. And, he- and yeah, because it feels good. You want to get there, but you don't also don't want to pressure her. But I do not like the fact that, you know, he just chose Brie just for the sake of choosing Brie. Yeah, of and smart. the
3: problem with, I have with Brie mostly is because... They're reused... Okay, Glee, I will admit, Glee has reused a lot of old material from before. A lot of old material. A lot. But this one is getting is, is starting to get to me. Yeah. I'm tired of this... Ho- you know, the Shears are even even... When's the last time we even saw the Shears actually do something for their team? They're just walking around in their, in their outfits and just messing with the Glee club. And it's just that, come on Ryan Murphy, you, can't, you know better than this. Yeah, Why yeah. do we need this unnecessary character when we just lost one of our biggest characters ever, and you also made Sue Sylvester principal who can just go and suspend whoever she uh, she was because she just feels like doing that. Speaking of
4: Sue Sylvester, I did like the the continuation of the rivalry between Mr. schuster and um Sue Sylvester still there. I like how uh, she mentions that even though even though she she. You know, needs the glee club to succeed. She doesn't want them to succeed just because of like her dislike of the glee club. Going, going to Sam and Penny. I really, I really am still on board with this relationship. But this episode really felt awkward. I really don't like the like the episodes centering around Sam because they make Sam like seem really egotistical and really self-centered and really weak. What you what are your thoughts on what I just said
3: I I had issues with it as well but I wasn't really I wasn't really focused on that I think yeah, the I mean, New York side like was so much more interesting this week that's the thing
4: yeah um, I mean like the penny the penny and Sam thing I understand because of everything that Sam on got on with Brittany I understand why he wants to uh, attract a girl I love the fact I love the fact that he was watching true Jackson VP it that, that just made me like it just made me love that Sam would like that show but going to New York like you were saying I lo- you know I like that it. and it's kind of and it's kind of like doing kind of like a smash thing the NBC show smash which I know you and I didn't watch but I like how like everybody's going towards their dreams and they're going towards them as a group I lo- I didn't I didn't think I would like the Adam Adam Lambert character But he warmed up to me. I I like this storyline. It was very short and simple and to the point. And you know what? For an episode back that we... After a long hiatus, after Finn's death, you needed an episode like this to, like, again, really center the audience.
3: Yeah, I I like Star Child. I... It was... I wasn't sure if they were still going to keep the character after the tragic event. But I feel like... I feel this is a great, fun character. I just hope that... We won't get a triangle drama between him, Kurt, and Blaine. And I, I know he didn't even, say, I know he didn't say he was gay or whatever, at least from what I remember. But I, assumely he, I think he may be gay, and well, I like, hope that it well, doesn't well, lead to a triangle drama. Well,
4: in real life, Adam Lambert is gay, so I probably.
3: No, yeah, yeah, I know, and uh, and and yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna get too much into it. But I, I, I like this, and I, I'm, it's. I just love seeing more of Demi Lovato's character, uh, Danny. She's just so great.
4: Yeah, um, I think, I think that's my, of all of the relationships on the show, um, post Finn and Rachel, that, that relationship is, is the most real and the most touching for me. Um, really nothing else to say unless you have something you want to say.
3: What was your favorite song?
4: Like really, I, did, and I, I think this is my, the first time, the first time that I've really, like, said this. I really didn't have that big a favorite song in this episode. Roar, Roar was good just because of the performance and seeing Becca Toppin and, like, the, that, like, Cave Girl outfit wasn't, wasn't unappealing to me. But, really, that was really my favorite song. What was yours?
3: Um, the last song. Yeah, Roar. Yeah, that, if, that, I think that was. If I, had, that was good. if
4: I had one complaint about this episode, it would have to be, um, unique Kitty and Jake and and Tina. Like, like that really had no. That really had nothing, nothing to do with the episode. But other than that, I thought this episode was at least like a three point five out of five, maybe a four. What do you think?
3: I'll give it a 4, 4, 4 out of five.
4: Okay, so we'll see you guys next week on the New Direction section. <laughs> Let's take it yeah, back to Nick and Dan. Bye,
3: guys. All right, thanks,
2: guys. Now we're going to move on to the voicemail section this week.
1: A call has been forwarded four, 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. Tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options.
2: In this week's section, we have a voicemail from Woo, as usual, about Once Upon a Time.
4: Hey. Dan and Andy, this is Wu. I just wanted to give my thoughts on this week's episode of Once Upon a Time. Thought it was great. Thought it hit all the things it was meant to hit. Loved the introduction of Ariel Joanna Garcia. Did a fantastic job with this character. Loved all the shout-outs to the Little Mermaid. Loved everything within this episode. The one thing I didn't get, though, is where is this in the timeline with Regina and Snow? Loved to see... Emma, I mean, Regina and Gold on the same page. Loved the reveal of what what Belle really is on the island. Loved people revealing their secrets. Loved Mark Isham's music during that scene where the group finds Neil. Really, really great episode. Really nothing more to say about it. Five out of five. Talk to you guys later. See you next week. Bye.
2: Thanks again, Wu, for your great comments this week. We look forward to hearing from you and maybe some of our other listeners next week so we will have even more comments to play in the voicemail section. Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call us at 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback. Hope to hear from some more of you soon.
0: Alright, well, now that the voicemails are wrapped up and we've pretty much solved everything, I think it's time to end our under-the-sea party, Could head back up to the surface, come with our closing for the week. So, Nico, take it away with what's going happen on next week's episode.
2: Yeah, on next week's episode, we continue to cover more of the fall 2013 TV season with in-depth discussions as usual on Once Upon a Time, Castle, Supernatural, Person of Interest, and a two-parter of Legend of Korra, and our sitcom section including How I Met Your Mother, Modern Family, and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on Homeland, Sleepy Hollow, The Blacklist, New Girl, Revolution, Elementary, and more. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at Across the Airwaves.
0: Yeah, and until our next episode of Across the Airways comes out, you can check out our spin-off podcast. We've got It's Tangent Time, which basically takes an entertainment topic that the host Michael and Wu, wants to talk about. And they give their two cents on it. And they cover everything on that show from superheroes to comic books to Star Wars to TV to Power Rangers to you name it, they cover it on that show. So it's basically whatever they want to talk about in the entertainment industry. Also we've got Across the Airways DC Nation podcast which basically covers all of the imaginative content DC Comics provides for its fans. We normally cover on that show the animated series Beware the Batman but since that's on Kyanis right now Michael and I are covering comic books including Smallville Season 11 and also everything that's going on with the big event in the DC comic books entitled Forever Evil. We just did an episode reviewing Forever Evil 2, got all the tie-ins that go to that. Next week, we're going to do an episode on Forever Evil as well as the Batman story arc that's quite popular getting a lot of attention. Zero year. So we'll be talking about that on the next DC Nation podcast. Also, we've got the Heli Carrier podcast, which covers episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in greater detail. Um, that's why we don't cover it on this podcast. We have our own podcast dedicated to covering Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And also, if you're looking for our reviews on Arrow, you can check out Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast. Because that's a podcast hosted by Michael and Wu that cover episodes of Arrow in greater detail. Also, if you'd like, you can contact our podcast in a variety of ways by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. There you can actually support our podcast as well by clicking the button in our spotlight section that says download this podcast on iTunes. If you click that, or you click any of the subscribe buttons, to our podcast, all the purchases you make for the next three days on the iTunes store will go towards supporting Across the Airwaves, as well as, you know, the regular iTunes system. So if you want to help out Across the Airwaves, please do that. And if you want to contact us, you can email us at Airwaves at gmail.com. Again, that's Across Airwaves at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook to follow all the movie and TV news that Nico, Wu, Andy, Michael, I myself report on during the week, and to stay updated on our podcast episode releases. Okay, for that same content, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter is Across Airwaves. There's no the there, it's just Across Airwaves. Or you can just join our circle God Google+. Call us if you'd like, we really would like one. You can leave us a voicemail. Again, Woo graciously does it every week. We'd appreciate it if some other people could got their voices just to mix it up with that. What number can you call to do that, Nico? Seven seven
2: three eight zero nine three three six three. Also,
0: you can check out our YouTube channel, which has previews for a whole bunch of upcoming movies. Uh, we have trailers for Thor The Dark World, which just recently came out. It was a great film. I really enjoyed it. And also, we have trailers for Captain America, The Winter Soldier, which were released. So you can check those out on our YouTube channel. And we have also are going to be adding trailers for The Amazing Spider-Man once they are available on YouTube. Cause I know those came out with the Thor movie as well. So those will be up, and just keep an eye out for trailers for other upcoming movies that are out their way. Also, if you don't want to go back through this podcast for all the ways you can contact us, you can download our Podcast Box app, which will let you listen to our podcast, and stay in contact with our podcast through your iPad or iPhone. And if you're on an Android or Windows device, you can download our Android app through the Amazon Marketplace for that same content. So once again, for our other podcast hosts, Michael J. Penny, WooCam got and Andy Babacht. I'm Dan Schmidt.
2: And I'm Nico Reistek.
0: And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See everyone. Have a great week. And thanks for joining us on this
1: week's deep sea adventure under the sea. See you guys. The seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. You dream about going up there, but that is a big mistake. Just look at the world around you, right here on the ocean floor. Such wonderful things are around you. What more are you looking for under the sea? Under the sea. Darling, it's better down where it's wetter, take it from me. Up on the shore, they work all day, out in the sun, they slave away. While we're devoting foot, I'm floating under the sea. <laughs> the fish is happy as after the waves they roll. The fish on the land ain't happy. It's hard cause they in the bowl, but fish in the bowl is lucky. They in for a worse fate. One day when the boss get hungry, yes, you got me on the plate. Go under the sea, under the sea. Nobody beat us fry us, and eat us in fricassee. Jeffster lives, man. laughs, man.